If I tell them you're in your right mind, they'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. Prison? Because I'm in my right mind? What a world. Go to prison, you'll never act again. Hello and welcome to Fighting Anime, a podcast about life's big questions. I am Marshall McCready. Today I'm excited to bring you a conversation that I had with Dr. Kevin McCaffrey, who is an assistant professor in the sociology department at the University of North Texas. Dr. McCaffrey is a prolific sociologist, social psychologist, criminologist, theorist. He has written countless papers in sociological theory and criminology, social psychology, and other related uh, disciplines. He's written and co-authored books whose titles include Alcohol and Violence, What Morality Means, The Secular Landscape, Cultural Evolution. Kevin is a fascinating person to talk to, and he was also my major advisor when I was a graduate student at uh, UNT. He uh, was the major advisor on my uh, thesis on moral panic theory. Kevin and I are on a research team called the Worldview Foundation's Research Team, along with Dr. Nanda Saeed, where we have done some work um, for the Skeptic Research Center, which is a research institute associated with um, Skeptic Magazine. And the impetus for today's conversation was a disagreement that Kevin and I had about whether there was such a thing as a scientific worldview. Kevin thinks there is such a thing. I don't think that there can be such a thing. And the reasons that we disagree are, as I think you'll see, pretty profound, as in like very deeply rooted. They're so deep that it's hard to even put your finger on it. Um, And um, the conversation that I bring you today is an edited version of a much longer conversation where we go back and forth on kind of the same point, but in different ways. And I think we did make some progress, but at the same time, I feel like we're using language so differently that it's, it's hard to say how much we really agree or disagree. But the question of what kind of thing can be a worldview is related to questions of human free will and agency and um, existence. And Kevin and I have a kind of different perspective epistemologically where I don't think that there is such a thing as like objective truth or I'm not a rationalist about truth. And he seems to be, and that seems to be kind of a a fundamental difference that pervades kind of everything, uh, but in an interesting way, I think. Um, so we talk about human free will and agency kind of in the, the first part. We also talk about the practical problem of choosing between a more general or a more specific frame of reference. We talk about um, the problem of setting scope conditions for science and whether or not science can set its own scope conditions, meaning the parameters of a research project, a research question. We talk about the potential relationship between autism and viewing the world scientifically. We talk about truth and truth-seeking. We talk about 
the relative utility um, for life of a scientific worldview versus a religious worldview. Um, I'm not defending a religious worldview, although I, I kind of felt like I was in this conversation. Um, and we also talk about the meaning of meaning. When we say, quote-unquote, a sense of meaning, what is that? When we say meaning in life, what is that? That's a huge question. I want to note a couple things before playing the audio, some themes to kind of look out for. Are Kevin or I, are we talking from a first-person or a third-person point of view? Also, are we looking backwards or are we looking forwards? I think that, generally speaking, the perspective that Kevin defends is kind of a third-person, more backward-looking perspective. That doesn't mean that it's backward. <laughs> I just mean that it's looking to the past. It's kind of retrospective, uh, in my opinion. And I think that m the view that I'm defending is more first-person and forward-looking. To Kevin, my view is subjective hegemony. It is a solipsistic or pseudo-solipsistic, solipsism being the belief that um, the world exists within your mind, that there is no mind-independent reality. Um, and I kind of accept this, and I wear it kind of as a badge of honor, I think, because I think that what, what I would call what he's saying is just kind of individualism in the sense that I think that everyone has the burden of the responsibility of figuring out what the meaning of their life will be, if it will mean anything. I mean, it will certainly mean something, but will it be coherent? Kevin mentions in our conversation that he's noticed that people who defend the view that I uh, defend or articulate tend to be from a religious background, and I am from a religious background. And the question of to what extent my upbringing in a religious um family and setting, culture, has, uh, has impacted my thinking today, it's hard to say. I don't know. And it's one of those things that I don't know if I can know exactly. Um, I do wonder if, if my sense that there is this meaning that can be lived out, that can be performed, a kind of symbolic meaning where we are the symbols the meaning isn't a feeling, but the meaning is constructed or created through our intentional action. I wonder if my belief that there is such a thing as that is a product of my religious upbringing. I don't know, but to me it feels um, essential and necessary for, for life. I don't understand how, uh, what it would mean to exist without the existence of that. Um, I remember one time meeting this guy, a kind of friend of a friend, and somehow, I, I, I mean, with me, it's not, <laughs> I could have just randomly brought it up, but uh, somehow the topic of religion and God and came up philosophy and stuff, and somehow we got onto that, and the guy was saying, he was like, oh, I've never really thought about whether or not God exists and here I was, someone who I've felt like such intense internal turmoil <laughs> about these questions. And um, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, there's like this, there's this whole 
all of these ideas and questions that this person isn't pursuing and then feeling really kind of disturbed of like, well, am I just wasting my time asking these questions? You hear that Kevin kind of says that I am. And he says that people who spend their time reading philosophy, reading these people who are really good at manipulating language, uh, he thinks that they might be wasting their time to some extent. I don't know. I push back at that, but it's hard to say. It's really a, it's a really philosophical question. <laughs> um, a couple other things to say real quick before I play the audio. I am sorry for the quality of the audio, um, particularly my voice. Kevin sounds a lot better than I do. I used um, a microphone that I thought was going to be better, and it was worse because I don't know anything about microphones or audio. Um, trying to work on that. Also, this is a pretty dense conversation. Kevin and I know each other. We are familiar with what kinds of things each other might be familiar with. So we move fast and um, maybe too fast. We might have defined some terms up front that might have been helpful, but oh well. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions or really anything, you can email me at fightinganimy at gmail.com. It's literally just the title of the podcast at gmail.com. And I do this for fun, but also it would be cool if it went out into the world. So if you like this podcast, um, please share it on social media um, or something like that. That would be awesome if you feel so inclined. All right. And at long last, I bring you a conversation about a scientific worldview with Dr. Kevin McCaffrey. Yeah, we're, we're measuring how, how close people's worldview matches the scientific worldview. And then you and I started having a conversation about, well, what even is the scientific worldview? And then I thought about it. And then I was like, I actually don't think there is such a thing. Um, and I... And I said that I don't think that there can be such a thing because I think that a worldview is something that guides people's actions in terms of informing them of how they ought to prioritize what they ought to do. So there's like an ought uh, there. Um, and so like, um, I'm curious what you made of what you make of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, two things. The first is that uh, when religious people or politicians tell you what you, ought, what you ought to do. We can sit back and go, ah, and ought. Or we could say, here's a goofy human primate telling me what they think they should do. Okay, uh, is it good advice? Is it bad advice? Do they know what the fuck they're talking about? And then you would just appeal to some kind of evidence or data or logic in the world. So, so the fact that religions have oughts, I mean, I couldn't care less. I mean, you know, a person rambling on the streets right now in the throes of schizophrenia will have all kinds of oughts for everybody around them. Uh, the, the second thing is that um, science is riddled with oughts. It's just that it's not taught that way. Um, why? I'm not sure. I think this is an artifact of people wanting to believe. And I see this especially among people who were raised religious. People wanting to believe that science is somehow beyond, 
human concern. It's beyond morality. It's beyond odds. It's beyond even emotion. All we need is stern, austere people in lab coats doing beaker things. And <laughs> all of a sudden, we'll know what reality is for sure. Okay, so this is a kind of a transitional way of thinking about worldviews. It's, it's people coming out of a religious view and looking for something more stable and secure, something beyond the, the emotional, moralistic whims of, 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 of a certain primate humans. Uh, but that's not, in fact, what's happening. What, what's happening, um, and you can see this, I think, most, you can see this, like, in s many, many ways. But, but I think the most recent one has been this debate about open science, that researchers ought to make their data available. Researchers ought to uh, uh, pre-register their hypotheses. Uh, researchers ought to try to... Uh, seek out disconfirming um, uh, evidence, uh, what they call antagonistic research groups, where, where one part of the research group thinks the other part of the research group is wrong about a basic hypothesis. All of these are riddled with thoughts. Uh, you ought to submit your paper to peer review. Uh, you ought to maintain logical consistency. I could go on and on and on. You ought to um, read uh, past work before you do your own, what we call a literature review. So, I mean, it, it is... It is yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, and I try to see this argument because it's not just coming from you, Marshall. This is coming from the, the, the elite of the intellectual world. This is coming from people that I deeply respect, that I look up to uh, at the best schools in the United States. And they tell me this. And I say, okay. what in the fuck are you talking about? And I honestly <laughs> have no idea, Marshall. So convince me, please. Because if I'm missing something, uh, this, is, this is a big piece to be missing. So. I'm trying to figure out, like, uh, am I just somehow short-sighted on this? Am, am I importing a use of the term ought that doesn't belong? Or really have people just learned about science in this highly stereotyped, supremely superficial way, and it's constraining how we think about worldviews in general? Mm, okay, that was awesome. So uh, first of all, I just want to make sure that we mean the same thing by a couple terms. Um, by an ought, do you mean a goal? Like, an ought is a description of a, an approach to take in order to fulfill some goal. Is that how you understand it? Uh, an ought is what you should do if you want truth, meaning, or goodness. Well, okay. Well, so that's where, see, I, I, I view it like that there's like a nested set of oughts. And I see that there are like what I would call like methodological goals. So some of the things that you talked about, about like open science, like registering your data and stuff like that. That's a kind of, I, I, how I understand that is that's like a sub goal in the method of science that we have said is uh, useful for accomplishing a greater goal uh, with like the, with, with using science generally. Um, so like my sense is that there are these more fundamental goals that are motivating the application of science. And then from the application of science, we develop these methods and then there are methodological, but it's kind of downstream. And so what the, the odds that I'm specifically concerned about as not being able to like ground or um, uh, to provide content uh, for the scientific worldview are the like the, the beginning odds, the odds that are like science is useful. Um, and how I understand that is you have to have some goal, um, you have to have some goal uh, for which the scientific process would be useful to begin with. Are you tracking with me on that? I, I am not actually. I'm Ooh, not okay. tracking what you're saying. 
okay. Do you understand? Do you? But, but do you I, think I, I think I think I am. I just don't buy it. Right. So, okay. so the idea is is that there's this. It's it's a kind of a version of the um, naturalistic fallacy or some kind of origin fantasy. But it's the idea that because religions make claim or polit uh, political ideologies make claims, basic claims about what is morally good, therefore they are conferring something to you about what is morally good, as opposed to just animal making noises. I see it the other way around. I'm not thinking in terms of religion necessarily. I'm thinking more of kind of like um, an existential individualism where, where everyone figures out their goals as an individual. What do I want from my life? Um, and then, and I, I see that as kind of the starting place. Like I really, I think about like, you know, was it Camus who talked about like, I can either kill myself or have a cup of coffee. Like mm -hmm. I see it as kind of urgent like that. Like, um, well, what do I want from life? And I feel like you have to answer, you have to answer that question first of, well, what do I want today to be like, tomorrow to be like, the rest of my life to be like, before you can go as a person, oh, science is applicable to help me, to help me make my life that way. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, okay, wh where are you getting that stuff from, Marshall? Is, is religion telling you that? Uh, is politics telling you that? Because uh, it, it feels like that should be like that, uh, but no, religion's not telling you anything. Uh, they're making a guess and it's a guess based on a person's intuition. That's it. If I wanted to be an astronaut, and I actually do, I think uh, <laughs> I'm wasting my life as a sociologist. I feel that's self-evident. Uh, but, but yeah, I want to be an astronaut, Marshall, and I want to go to Mars and I want to be like Elon Musk. Probabilistically, that's not going to happen. And there's scientific reasons why that's not going to happen. Um, uh, I don't have the education. I don't have the right network contacts. Um, uh, you know, I, you, you can make a case about where I grew up and, and the influences on my life. Um, you know, uh, so, so what, what we can be, what potential counts as, what avenues are probable. And this is not just in terms of how I want to be, but, uh, what kind of life I can have, you know, all these things are subject to probabilities and constraints. And mm -hmm. if and, and I can say, I want to be an astronaut and, and, you know, a Pope can say, Kevin, you ought to, to uh, uh, be an astronaut so that we can better understand the, the mind of God, the celestial sphere. And oh, that sounds so good. And I got an ought, and, uh, but it's useless. It's absolutely useless. If we want to talk about what you ought to do or what will give you meaning in life, then we have to be talking about nothing more than the constraints on the probabilities of your options and the, your constitution as an animal. So like, I don't need to know who you are to know that having kids will give you meaning because of, because of evolution by natural selection. Uh, now, religion will also tell you that having kids will be making, give you meaning, um, but they won't know why. They will just have gotten it right by chance. Uh, but if you talk to an evolutionary biologist, he'll have a really good idea about why having kids will uh, give you meaning. And also the, the circumstances under which having those kids will give you meaning. So, for example, if you have five or six kids in a very rich country, uh, you're going to be ridiculously economically burdened. Frankly, kids are burdening no matter what and, and economically burdening in any society. Uh, but so uh, evolutionary theory can't just won't just tell you whether uh, kids will give you a sense of meaning. They will also tell you about how many you can expect to have probabilistically, statistically, um, and how that might even impact your sense of meaning and purpose. So having two kids over having 10 kids. And, and you, 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 you see people kind of shifting anyway with these demographic trends, women having access to education and birth control and stuff like that. Um, families have fewer, fewer kids. It confers a different kind of meaning. I mean, so here we are, we're talking about meaning, we're talking about purpose, we're talking about what is probabilistic for, you know, what is kind of available to you and your avenues in life, probabilistically, 
which is all we can really say. Maybe I will wake up and be an astronaut in six years. I mean, it's possible. It's extremely unlikely. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're firmly in the realm of a discussion about logic and reason and probability and natural history. And, you know, and, and I would just say, and I, I, I pose this question. I mean, you know, if science isn't able to do this, tell me what is. And if nothing's able to do this, well, then I think what's happening is that um, uh, we're just working with too strict of a definition of meaning so that religion and science, nothing can confer it. So it's just a useless kind of like a idealized metaphysical term. You know, we all wish, I, I think my, my take on us being primates is that we want hierarchy and we want order and we actually want to be dominated uh, and controlled now loosely by, by a benevolent uh, loving uh, entity. Um, now, when we were children, this this looks like having very loving, caring parents. Feels good. Feels you know protecting. Feels safe. Um, we want order. We want guidance. We want this badly, uh, and we imagine we can get it from some areas, like religion or politics. Um, and and we imagine that we we might have a more difficult time getting it from from science. But uh, I, I don't think um, either we're not getting this anywhere because we're defining it in this pure sense of like what ought I do? Tell me what ought I do. And I need that to be 100% correct. Or if we define it a little bit more loosely, we find that you can get this sense of meaning in religion and politics and science. It's just that religion and politics give it to you in a less rational, less empirically based, less informed way. I think that the phrase, the sense of meaning is incoherent because I do think that nothing is meaningful. Um, like, and I, I don't think that's too strict of a definition because I just believe that we make our own meaning as individuals and that and that it's impossible to know if something is meaningful to someone for the same reasons that it's impossible to know exactly what someone's intentions are. So I don't like I don't I don't think that religions oughts. I would have this conversation about religions oughts as well to some extent, um, but it's a little different because I think religion is individualizable in a way that science is not. Because unless you are a scientist, um, in which case I think maybe things are a little bit different. Um, the scientific worldview doesn't, it doesn't give you any content, I don't think, about how to make daily decisions in your life. Um, and that's, and it's that facing of those daily decisions that I think uh, where this conversation comes in. Although also, Kevin, there's a really interesting thing about time that has been bugging me lately. Like we're living now and there's a confrontation with the unknown that I think plays into how I understand all of this. Um, but I want to table that for a second. Um, can, can, I, when, can I follow up on the thing you just said about how science yeah. tells us how to live our lives? I, I just don't, I'm, I don't see that. So science will tell me about how many hours of sleep I should get within a range. It will vary based on my individual genes and okay. so on. How can it tell you how much sleep to get? Uh, well, it can take me, it can tell me on a population level. So on average, if I, if I slice it down by my demographic group, my age, my race, et cetera, et cetera, it can, it can give me a range within which um, uh, 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 a certain amount of hours seems to confer uh, clarity and comfort and, and a feeling of health and focus, et cetera. But then we can also scan my brain. We can uh, uh, take um, blood draws. Uh, uh, saliva samples, there's all these ways that you can get at my inner hormonal and physiological state. And we can assess that way based on, you know, we can take samples when I've, you know, gone a period of time sleeping, of, you know, five hours, we can take samples when I've gone a period of time sleeping 10 hours. Easy. And, and the thing is, is even if it wasn't, and it's not literally easy, because there's a lot of computation here, and there's a lot of measurements and so on. But, but, but compared to a priest, 
telling you how many hours. I mean, this mother, this guy's guessing. Or I go to Joe Biden. Hey, Joe Biden, how many hours? I should, this motherfucker. Okay, so it's the <laughs> between it's the difference between having a, something of an answer and having absolutely no answer, but being told by a really confident authority. I'm gonna push you on this. Yeah. So say say that I had all the resources in the world to figure out what is the perfect amount of sleep time for Dr. Kevin McCaffrey, yeah. and wouldn't you be the ultimate arbiter of which sleep time is best? Aren't you setting the criteria based on what kind of life you want to live? No, there isn't a you, there isn't a me independent of my heart rate, blood pressure, breathing rate, subjective ability to focus. That, that is me. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be frankly an unsatisfying process to figure out how many hours Marshall McCready needs to sleep. It's going to be an unsatisfying process because there's going to be a lot of variance. There's going to be a lot of error. You're going to have to take a lot of measurements. And it might even seem like, you know, there is no answer. Maybe Joe Biden can give me a better answer. Maybe my local preacher can give me a meal, but they can't. It's just that reality is frustratingly complex, frustratingly context dependent. But uh, in terms of the best way to answer how many hours of sleep you ought to get, science is the only game in town. Here's what I don't understand. So, okay, can we switch up the example? Because I already have, let's switch it up to food, like diet. Uh, do you think that science can tell you like, what's the best diet? Within, with, yeah, okay. The thing I don't get about that is say, I feel like it's so contingent upon the goals of the individual, which I do think are intentional or they're like, they're, they're not something that could be reduced to the material. And here's an example, like the difference between like a sumo wrestler and like a gymnast, you would have to like, if, if, if you were a sumo wrestler or if you were a genius, uh, gymnast and you like commissioned a bunch of scientists to figure out like what is the best possible diet, right? You have all the money in the world and you can do that. The, the starting places are going to be so different because like the sumo wrestler is going to be like, I want to be the number one sumo wrestler. And then the gymnast can be like, I'm going to be the number one gymnast. So that's what I don't get. So I, I keep, I keep like pushing back time a little bit um, to kind of get to these like initial goals. I feel like we're playing like this, like time game. Um, but what do you think about that? Like that individualization? Yeah. So that's just a basic part of scientific inquiry. They're called scope conditions. So in other words, a sumo wrestler is unhealthy relative to the gymnast because they're overweight and obese, period. And we can show that in blood pressure. We can show that in a lot of different ways. Um, basically, stress on cells uh, and stress on organs um, from the increased mass, uh, body mass. So that's clear. Now, however, what you're doing is you're just adding a scope condition. You're saying, well, Kevin, but... Um, given the scope condition that I want this individual to be able to move another 350 pound individual out of a ring, given that, what is the healthiest state? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're just off and running with a scope condition. So uh, in the context of being 350 pounds, uh, you know, how many hours of sleep, what, what sort of diet, uh, uh, what sort of coping strategies for stress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, seem to work for this group of individuals or this one individual. And of course, the more we zoom in on one individual, we need more measurements. We need a longer span of time where we're measuring them. There's going to be more error, all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, no, it's just adding a scope condition. It's not, we're not moving out of the realm of science or, and, and again, I would always, every time you have this like pain of like, ah, I, so, so was a preacher going to tell the sumo wrestler? Oh, so, so the idea is the sumo wrestler will decide what is healthy. So, so if I'm a sumo wrestler and I decide that I need to be 350 pounds, there's a lot of ways to be 350 pounds. One way is to eat a lot of na natural, like healthy, like butter, fats, uh, almonds, nuts, um, uh, 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 carbohydrates, but there's different types of carbohydrates. The other way to do it is just to eat McDonald's seven times a day. 
So do we, do you really believe that the best way to figure this out is for the sumo wrestler to just kind of wake up and just sort of ballpark what they want to eat? Like they can be true. And, and it can't be true that they can go to a preacher and the preacher will, you should have this. Because. No, Joe Biden's not going to do it. Like th- there is one game in town and it's so, from my vantage point, grossly superior to everything else we have. And, uh, uh, and yes, I do think can constitute a worldview at, at, at at kind of a higher level of abstraction, but just just this question of the sumo wrestler, yeah, that, that's how I would answer it, is that you're, 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 you're adding a scope condition. So if the person's gonna be 350, how can we determine how they can be the healthiest 350 they can be? And that, that to me is absolutely a scientific question and it will, conf- it, it will give us odds. Okay, I totally agree with you there. I agree, I agree that science is gonna be way better than going to some religious authority and asking, you know, how much, what should I eat? But where I get hung up is I don't like when you say like just a scope condition, I don't think it's just like, I think that what people are, like what a you is, I think is moral content. I think it's a set of scope conditions or priorities um, that are also, and there's also a mysterious element in addition that seems to be selecting. So like uh, you talk about science is probabilistic. I agree. I think that when we're self-conscious about the future uh, right now, about like, what should I do next? Um, We are facing a probabilistic judgment already because our scope conditions have narrowed our vision to what's relevant to us. But then we need to select from the relevant options, some specific option, and that will make the future. Um, and, uh, And so it's that, it's the mysteriousness to me of the going from the general set of, of probabilities um, within the range of uh, what's possible, I guess, um, and then selecting a specific one. So like, so the scientists, they bring, oh yeah, here we go. Like they give a couple different diets and they go like, they'll all work. Uh, there's like these three different diets and uh, you would just need to pick from the three. There is the kind of, I, I guess they would invoke another scope condition, but that would be external to the scientific research. It's the kind of, it's the internal external problem where I don't, it's a, it's also like the incompleteness problem. It's the same problem as that mathematical theorem or whatever, where you can't, uh, you can't, a system can't specify the constraints of itself. So like when you talk about scope conditions, can science give you the scope conditions of the question to ask to apply the scientific method to? I, I don't think it can. Okay. Sure. How- so let's use the sumo wrestler example. Uh, if I want to move, I, I'm right now, I'm 250 pounds. If I want to move a 350 pound sumo wrestler out of a ring, uh, I will need to add weight. <laughs> but Maybe why do I, you want to move that sumo wrestler? Isn't that the scope condition that needs explanation? The what one? Sorry. Like the, the, there's always a scope condition of the system, right? So like the system here would be the process of discovering but like, but the scope condition there is, well, what do you want to, to discover in the first place? So there's always this inside outside system problem as I see it. Uh, I guess I just don't really understand what you're saying. I, um, I mean, it sounds, I understand all the words you're using. I don't, I'm not gleaning meaning from the combination of the words. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if, if you're asking me, why do sumo wrestlers want to be sumo wrestlers in the first place? I mean, I, I imagine that they have family wrestler, uh, family members that were sumo wrestlers. I imagine they come from countries that 
uh, confer status based on um, sumo wrestling. I mean, th these are all, again, social scientific questions, questions about national origin, questions about family contacts. Uh, it doesn't, I, I don't have this, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very straightforward question. I, I, am I, maybe I'm like- uh, I think that the problem is, is that the reason why anyone would do anything, I think is almost always ultimately specific to the individual's life in the specific situations that have constituted that individual trajectory. And yeah. given that, I don't think- um, well, I have to agree with that, Marshall. I mean, of course that's true. Uh, okay. Yeah, what we think about the world, what we want to do in the world is influenced by our individual experiences. That, of course, that's true. When, yeah, I think I'm connecting that to the reason that you were just like, when we talk about like, well, why would the sumo wrestler, why would they want to be a, why would the person want to become a sumo wrestler? When we talk about reason, when we say like, oh, there's a reason, I think that we are decontextualizing the individual to some extent, like, they would have to give us a reason. Um, I have a, I have a, a thought experiment uh, that is kind of related to this that I want to throw at you. And I think it might be useful. I call it the argument for agency from indeterminacy. So I'm playing poker and I've had a few drinks and it's getting kind of late, but it's also getting really fun. Everyone's kind of getting into the game and feeling it. Um, and I, I suddenly zone in, right? I've been kind of not, I've been involved in the activity and suddenly I zone into myself. I have, I'm like now self-conscious. Um, and I ask myself, like, should I go home? Am I too drunk uh, to be here? Um, and I consider, you know, like, well, how many drinks have I had? All the, very, all the variables that appeal to me. Yeah. Uh, and then I go like, it's probably 50-50. I was like, you know, I've had this many drinks before and been fine, but also I've had this many drinks and not been fine and spent way too much money playing poker or whatever. Okay, so here's my plan. I can't make up my mind. So I'm going to make my future decision that hasn't occurred yet contingent upon something. And what I do is I decide, I'm just gonna repeat mentally in my head, home, stay, home, stay. And when that lady over there, if she says something, when she says it, right when she starts talking, whatever word, I'm like in the middle of saying where I've just said, that's going to be my decision. And so I start doing, it. I go home, stay, home, stay. And then she's like, hey, deal me in or whatever you say in poker. And then right when she starts it, I'm like, stay. And then she says it. So I go, okay, I got to say it. And I say, what determined my decision to stay? Okay, let me make sure I have the the uh, details down here. So you are sitting and playing poker and you're kind of drunk and mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out if you should go home. Mm -hmm. and uh and and so what what happens after that you you start reciting the words home so why are you saying home stay to yourself well because i can't make up my mind i'm like should i stay should i go i don't know I was okay like, so I go home or stay that's the home stay so those are two options okay gotcha my gotcha. two options yep okay. and i make those options contingent upon an environmental event that hasn't yet occurred okay Okay. And so, and, and so what's going to determine whether or not you go home or stay? So you're saying home, stay, home, stay. And what's the determinant? The determinant is the synchronization of whatever word I'm saying with uh, whatever, when the woman talks, if the woman talks okay. while I'm mentally saying home, then I go home. If she okay. starts talking when I'm saying stay, then I stay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And now what's the question? The question is when she says stay, I stay. I've already made up my mind. I'm okay. staying if she talks. And then I say, 
And I don't even have to think about it really because I had already made up my mind and then right. I stayed. Mm -hmm. The thing that gets me is I don't, I can't figure out what could have determined my staying if not for this spontaneous metacognitive decision that I've made. And so what, I, what my point is, I think that this, I think that this kind of demonstrates that there might be a you. How so? Because I am determining, I am. What do you mean by a you? I mean, I think there is a you. I don't, I don't, I think you're using the word you maybe different than how I, how I would use it. There's definitely a you I'm talking to him right now. Right. Well, I think what I mean by you is I think that there's a, a human agency uh, that has the capacity that has some capacity to choose between probabilities that isn't predictable ever. Um, that is like, I think that it, there's a certain degree of unpredictability, absolutely, given the fact that the future, like the next moment, that's the only moment of its kind. Um, so I think that what that shows is that there must be some kind of selection mechanism happening where if I'm like, because what else could have determined my decision to stay if not for this interaction between this rule that I have created for my future self and this environmental variable that was unknown and unknowable at the time that I set this rule for myself? Yeah. So the question is what determined your decision to stay? Uh, it would be what determined that decision was you concluding that you would do that you would act in whatever way was whenever whatever way was primed in that situation. So did I prime I was, myself though? Did you prime your? Uh, well, you had a cognition that whatever words were said around you at a certain point would determine your subsequent action. Mm -hmm. what, what am I missing? I'm missing something here. I'm not seeing any metaphysical depth to this or anything. I, it's just okay. Okay. Decision rule that you made. Um. So, I mean, uh, you know, if you use, the, if the next word out of your mouth contains an N, then I will close this computer and go run a mile. Uh, and, and so you speak a word that has an N in it, and I close the computer and I go run a mile. What's the, what am I missing here? I'm trying to connect. So we, we've kind of been inadvertently, we've been talking about without really specifically talking about this free will, free will issue and how it relates to, to the worldview. Yeah. I think that we have free will, although what I mean by that is really not what most people mean. Um, so that's something <laughs> I don't I don't mean free will in the way most people mean it. That's important. But uh, I think that I think our disagreement about whether science can constitute a worldview is connected to my belief that um, that we have individual agency and that we um, and that that agency is the explanation for what we do when we're self-conscious and not a worldview. Okay. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this, Marshall. Is this agency uh, separate from the laws of physics, electromagnetism, um, chemistry, molecular biology? Is, is this agency decoupled from those things? Um, because all of those things are determined. And in, in my view, and I, I regard this as obvious, our brains are nothing but electricity and chemistry and tissue. There is nothing else going on. Mm -hmm. um, all of those things are deterministic in that, at least at the macro level. I, I get we can talk about quantum mechanics and we can talk about indeterminacy and superpositions and stuff like that. But that's not 
this is not the biological world that seems to um, the macro physical biological world that seems to uh, uh, comprise the mechanisms of our body and of our mind. So, so that's this is this is always a sticking point for me. I mean, every time people want to talk about agency, this and that, and Dan Dennett and others have have have, have sneaky ways of getting around this. But um, if in fact Eunice is inextricably connected to law uh, regularities, let's say people get squeamish with the word laws. Okay, regularities in electromagnetism, um, you know, atomic physics, chemistry, et cetera, et cetera. If that is what Eunice is then just from that standpoint, I am already struggling to see how we're getting some kind of martialness that is not an emergent property of these lower order macrophysical, macrochemical uh, regularities in mm-hmm. which you would be determined in, in, the sense of, uh, in the sense that these lower order organizing mechanisms uh, follow regularities, very clear regularities that comprise biology textbooks and physics textbooks today. Okay, no, I agree. I don't think it's separate from it, but I think my interpretation is a little bit different. I think that I think that all those laws are in place, right? But how I understand, I do think that there is a real, and I, I you could use the word emergent, but I think that there's a top-down influence while there's also a bottom-up influence, but the top-down influence is the agency that I'm talking about, which I see as an emergent property of um, brain, body, and context. Um, and I see like people as people as mechanisms of energy transformation. It's not that they're, it's not that they are violating uh, these laws. Uh, like for example, uh, when you have a, an addiction, it's like it's like um, energy has been concentrated in a certain way, like where you have like this really hard to break habit. It's like the water has been going through the rocks for so long. There are all these grooves in the rocks, right? And well, how could the water stop? You don't stop the water. I think that you re uh, redirect the energy. And I'm using this term energy very loosely. So you're, right? you're, you mean electricity and chemicals. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that we, we, that's better. We transform electricity and chemicals according to our goals. Mm-hmm. I think that, but the goals, I think um, it's like self-conscious goals, goals that we set for the future. Those I don't think are explainable without an appeal to this emergent agency um, that is transforming energy um, how it is. I think I think the it's it's simply a, a translation issue. It's a it's a um, level of analysis issue. So mm-hmm. let's say my attitude is that abortion should be legal with no restrictions. Okay, Th- the noises I just made are in fact a a result of a particular configuration and pattern of electricity and chemistry in my brain. I would be able to explain. The, you know, from, from an orthodox scientific worldview, and I can get really wild if we want to, you know, I, I, part of me actually rejects all materialism. I, I don't think materialism is a, is a valid ontological uh, framework. About 30% mm-hmm. believes that. Okay. But so I'm going to go with the other 70%. My opinion, my political attitude is in fact, nothing more than a particular configuration and pattern of electricity and chemistry. Now, it would be a huge pain in the ass to try to figure out what a person's uh, 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 political attitude about abortion would be by just looking at their synapses and, and um, 
gap junctions between neurons. I mean, you know, and the amount of electrical impulse, that would be a nightmare. And, and, you know, maybe it would be so complicated that it would take so long. It would just wouldn't be feasible. So it just, mm. it, it, from a level of analysis perspective, from a, from a kind of a, a, a framing perspective, it, it makes more sense to just ask you, do you think we should have abortions with no restrictions or do, do are, are you pro-choice pro-life? It's I just ask you. And then the electrical configuration of your brain will just output the answer. It's just so much easier. It's like a shortcut. But, but these are not ontologically distinct things. All this, what you're calling context, situation, all of this is just configurations, very complex configurations, granted, you know, we layered configurations of electricity and chemistry. There is nothing else happening. And, and if there was, we should be able to discern that there's something else happening. But in fact, what's happening is, is, is layers of complexity, um, levels of analysis. And it can look like those level of analysis are completely different. I mean, We've all seen electrical charges. That looks nothing like a political attitude. If, if, a, uh, if, a, if an electrical cable on my street breaks and I see this electricity on the, on the ground, that doesn't look like an abortion attitude, but it is. That is an abortion attitude if it's configured in the tissues of a primate, namely homo sapiens. That can look like in a patterned way, if it's patterned and configured in neurons, the output of that electricity, we also have to add in some chemistry, uh, will in fact, output a political attitude in an adult primate that, that it really is just that is all that's happening are you uh are you familiar with like the argument from multiple realizability mm-hmm. i think are you not and you don't find that convincing um that like like for example when we talk about pain um and we say like like i have a dog oh pam my dog she's feeling pain and like if i if she gets hurt or something and she's yelping or whatever um, she's experiencing pain, but she has a different brain than mm-hmm. me. So her, the configuration that we would identify as pain is going to be a different kind of configuration mm-hmm. than for you or for me. So that's multiple realizability. There's multiple different configurations can make this one thing mm-hmm. uh, that we call pain. And if well, that's true- Species-specific neural structures, species-specific brains. So you're, 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 you're crossing species now to compare us to dogs. So yeah, there, there are species-specific evolutionary histories. So yeah, the, the exact pattern of electrical activity you know, in a given region in her brain, yeah, it might be associated with pain uh, and it might look different than an MRI of our brains or an EEG of our brains. But, the, but within species, um, there's going to be a, a lot of convergence. What remains constant when we talk about pain? Because that's the thing, I don't think anything does. I think the only thing that remains constant is us, our interpretation of what pain is. And if that's true, then I think interpretation is the base level of our reality. Oh, thanks. to some extent. Oh, I'm <laughs> right. so, so, so go kick your dog right now, Marshall, and then have <laughs> kick you in the stomach and, and philosophize oh, no, no, no. How wildly different these experiences were. Well, right, right, right. But well, I'm just saying like, I can't know for sure, right? We can't, we can't know for sure I can't know for sure that I mean that you're even like alive, um, that you're not like a, a zombified Kevin that's been made in like some weird lab. But like, okay, I want to stick on this. Though. Like the pain though, like, right? Like, because when you say like, oh, like a, oh, a political worldview, the political worldview, it's a configuration. But the thing to me is, well, multi- many different people across the country are say, you know, Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all going to vote Democrat but their configurations are so, their, their configurations are individual, they're singular. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's connecting them? 
as Democrats, if not our grouping, our cognitive grouping of them, like our categorization. I'm not saying when I say interpretation is the base level, what I don't, I don't mean that reality, I don't mean that there's not a mind independent reality. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the categories that we use are are fundamental and kind of constitutive of what we're even talking about in the first place. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't deny the, this idea of multiple realized, but it's just a, the idea of a causal nexus. There are many different ways. There are many different ways to produce a similar outcome. Uh, you know, I, I, that, that, that is undeniable. Um, reality is complicated, multi-causal it's, there's feedback loops, all of that, you know, but even the outcomes are different, like, cause, cause the outcomes here would be the, the specific configurations, right? The outcome wouldn't be pain. Pain uh, is our interpretation of the configuration, right? Um, pain is our interpretation of the configuration. Yeah. The way you talk about it is I don't the configuration is our. So it's weird to think that, so I guess you're, you're saying from your perspective, there's this electrical chemical activity and then there's a me that's interpreting. That's just a weird yeah. way to look at it. You are the electrical and chemical activity, Marshall. Well, no, it, no, but, but what if about, I'm interpreting other people's, like you, you, you just now, like we're talking about other people who, I don't know, like, like I'm looking at other people and I'm going, oh, these people over here, they're Democrats. Right. And so I'm not interested in this question of um, is their agency um, the same as you know their electrical activity? I'm I'm curious. Like, um, I'm, I have grouped them all. I have already grouped them together, right? As like they're all sharing this democratness right. that I have ascribed them or or I have classified them as having. Um, but that that leap there, I don't think that that's scientific. I don't I, like I don't understand where that comes from. The 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 leap of categorizing people. Yes. So like there's because because there's all these different configurations, right? There's there's actual like unless you have a category, the world is just completely it's just pure chaos. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the categorization of chaos, the carving out of a thing from nothingness Mm -hmm. is that action to me that and that's the most fundamental activity of consciousness as I or self-consciousness as I understand it. that's the thing that is the interpretation that the interpretation step that I'm talking about that I don't see how I don't see how that couldn't be agentic in a way that matters. I don't know what you mean by agentic in a way that matters, but uh, the brain is a categorizing machine. All brains are. That's part of what it is to be a brain is to be categorizing things, orienting oneself in space, orienting oneself vis-a-vis other objects. So that's what a brain is. Now, if we want to talk about humans, yeah, this tendency to, to, to categorize people is well, well, it's not well understood at the level of the nerve cell, but it's well understood as a, as a human universal cognitive bias. So not only do people form categories, but they tend to form, and this is cross-culturally true, they tend to form dichotomous categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, not me, friend, not friend. Uh, you know, if I'm a Democrat, it's going to be Democrats and everyone else. Um, if I'm a Republican, it's Republicans and everyone else and everyone else is probably no good. And and my group is probably special. This is, you know, Corey Clark has this great article called tribalism is human nature. Um, when you're talking about categories, you're talking about tribalism. These things are well understood at a, at a coarse grained level. Um, you know, we can't build an AI system to autonomously become tribal yet, but it, it seems very clear that these are dedicated neural circuits, um, that implicate specific regions of the brain. 
you know, the, the more emotional and moral the categories are, the more they implicate subcortical areas of the brain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The more rationalized they are, they implicate more the prefrontal cortex. Uh, it's a very straightforward uh, engineering problem. I, I, I think I really do think that we're we're speaking we're using words in subtly different ways. It's almost like a, a poverty of language. You know, these terms agency, mm. free will. We're we're inheriting them from a religious age, and yeah. uh, you know they're just useless as a result. And so it's like you say agency in a way that matters. I I wonder what you really mean by that. Let me let me lay this out. Here's kind of how I. Here's my understanding of free will, which has evolved a lot. First of all, I think that you cease to exist when you're not self-conscious um, and, and specifically self-conscious. Like if you're living, you're conscious. But I think that you're only you. You only exist as you. The thing that is you only exists when you're self-conscious. And I think that we create inputs into the equation because we live in an environment. And of course, the environment's going to be an, an input. But we create um, inputs for our future self. And it's that time issue there. I feel like your perspective, I feel like you're looking past and I'm looking future. And I think let's this is the main this, difference. Let's drill on this time thing because you keep bringing up time, time, time. And in, in my mind, time is, it's not even a, so, so let's, time. Here's an example. It's taken me a long time to put these pieces together, but I've always been fascinated by habits. And what has particularly fascinated me is that liminal space between when you start trying, what I mean by habits specifically here is intentionally self-created habits, habits you don't have before mm -hmm. that you want to have and that you create by how you confront the future. There's this weird liminal time space, something where that practice that you're trying to self-habituate becomes habituated. So for a really long time, when I was growing up, I wouldn't turn the lights off and my parents would be like, Marshall, you have to turn the lights off. And eventually it became automatic where I, I didn't need to be self-conscious. I didn't need to attend self-consciously um, to the light switch. I would just automatically behave. I would do it. And I think that we have, I don't have too much scientific evidence for this yet, but I think that there are other people working on this though. This isn't just me exactly. I think that we have this capacity to do what we do when we make habits, but in a shorter time span. Sometimes I'll make a decision often when I'm self-conscious and I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know what to do today. I need to make a decision. I'll make a plan. And then sometimes I'll take a nap. And then right when I wake up from the nap, it's like, okay, just going down the plan. And I'm no longer planning anymore after I've woken up from the nap. It's just kind of automatic. I think that that's how we work. So I think that every time you become self-conscious, you're alive and you, within a certain set of options that you're aware of, you need to be aware of the options in the first place. You have the capacity to choose um, what will happen in the future based off of what intention you kind of self-prime. How I see it is like you, um, you self-prime your body to react in a certain way later and, and thereby inhibit metacognition, thereby inhibit your future self-consciousness. Like how I understand Marshall is as the collection of self-consciousnesses, self-conscious moments that I've had in my history. <laughs> um, and it's kind of like I'm reborn every time I become self-conscious again. But I think that that's the free will. The free will, it, it's the, the kind of the randomness or the indeterminacy 
that is uh, that emerges from my decision now to self-prime myself for some goal and then enter the future self-primed and unconscious, unself-conscious now at this point. Now I'm acting out of my intention and I'm not aware um, of, of it because it's guiding my behavior. Um, what do you think about that? So this is what I'm hearing. Uh, if past conscious states can influence future conscious states, and if something can set a goal, then it has agency. Uh, I, my, I don't, it, to me, that what it should be is, uh, it is empirically the case that animals calibrate themselves to the future based on their past mm-hmm. experiences. It is, it is empirically but the case. Which future? Which future? You said the future, but which future? Any future, a future state. It would have to be the individual's future, right? It would have to be like total. The, the future would have to be singular to the individual mm-hmm. for them to be preparing for it. Yeah, we would experience one future. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so yes, animals uh, calibrate themselves to future states based on past states, and animals set goals. Clearly, they do this. Even bacteria does this. How we're getting so so bacteria must have agency. Um, I, I just, uh, I mean, okay. I, I just, I, I, for me, agency, I'm, I actually, I, you know, and this is my suspicion is that we actually don't disagree at all. I just, um, I would just say that, uh, yes, past states of consciousness influence future states of consciousness. Yes, animals create goals, period. We don't need to say, and therefore I am operating with a special unis and I'm influencing reality independent of electricity or like all of this is just confusion after those two basic statements about past consciousness influencing future consciousness and animals being able to set goals. Those are clearly part of the natural world. Um, We don't, Hmm. it's hard to explain these things at the level of nerve cells yet. We can't reproduce this in general AI yet, but, but, but. But clearly, these are aspects of animals and aspects of organisms. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not seeing the 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 issue for me is the self-introduced randomness. In order for the past to predict the future, there must be patterns from which you can extrapolate and use as predictions. But when we, but when this, in my example, the the person who decides they created this rule to go home they have no idea whether they're going home or staying. Their goal is disconnected. Their goal is to- They don't have a goal. Uh, they don't have their a goal. goal is, their goal is to so figure past. out- No, 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 their goal, they do have a goal. They, we, they have to have a goal, right? There's no way that they couldn't have a goal because we're always calibrating for the future based on goals. Like the goal is to make a decision. The goal is to know what to do. Right? Isn't well, that you, wouldn't you that be the goal? Because whenever the woman talks, that your, your goal is to not make the decision, and okay, I think yeah, that, that's, that's that causing sense. a pretzel. You know, that's causing like a. a well, see, a, that's a that's that's the indeterminacy that I'm getting at, though. It's self like there's self. I if I have if I have if I have made my future contingent upon something else, and I have decided what that something else is, but I don't know what how it will appear in the world. You know, when it eventually happens I don't see how that's predictable right that's the engagement with the future I don't see how like you Kevin that's a kind of thing that I don't think any you could possibly predict 
Well, uh, so there's a difference between predicting something in practice and predicting it in principle. So mm -hmm. uh, it's possible not to be able to predict things in practice just because of the limitations of our perceptions or tools or whatever. So, you know, how many geese were flying over the Catholic Church when Martin Luther nailed his 90, 99 theses or 95 theses or whatever? It's already plenty of theses. I don't think anybody got past the third one, probably. <laughs> if I assigned that to my students, they wouldn't get past the first one. So, um, so yeah, no, how many geese were flying above the, I don't fucking know. There's no way, but, but clear, there, there absolutely was an answer to how many geese, assuming geese are, are in Europe in this area. There, there was an answer to that question in principle. There's no reason to think that if, if the scientific method existed back then and there were um, uh, you know, people bird watching at that time systematically, we could have had an answer to that question. So, but in practice, we don't. But it would be, it would be a mistake to say that the in principle and in practice are ontologically wildly different context. It's just that mm -hmm. we weren't alive during that time observing that fact to, to know what it was. So what you're saying is, Kevin, you can't predict in a one-off setting whether or not Janice is going to talk uh, uh, when I, in my mind, I'm saying home, stay, home, stay. I, you can't predict, Kevin, with 100% certainty when Janice is going to talk. No, of course not. But, th but that's an in-practice question. In principle, absolutely you could. So, so I would just simply um, multiply these contexts. I create a, a, a hundred thousand of them. I duplicate Marshall. I duplicate Janice. I duplicate the context. So we have exactly similar circumstances. And then I would simply assess Janice's level of situational anxiety, situational nervousness, because depending on her personality and her genetic history, that will influence how much she talks in that situation. Um, and I can roughly get a baseline uh, measure, like a base rate of how often she talks in general. I could look at the situational cues in the environment. So if a doorbell rings and that makes her nervous, she'll be more likely to talk. I mean, a completely answerable question about the probability of her speaking when you're saying home or stay. So in principle, it is scientifically answerable. In practice, it is not, but it is the same world we're living in. It's just that I have constraints on my ability to replicate that situation enough where I could do a scientific analysis. But that doesn't mean it's not amenable to a scientific analysis in principle. It doesn't mean that we're somehow beyond science or beyond determinism. We're still firmly there. What you've done is you've created a thought experiment though that is by design a one-off. And so you're concluding that because of that, there is no determinacy, da, da, da. No, 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 there is. It's just that when you restrict your example to a one-off, then, 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 you know, by definition, we couldn't have a, a, a comparison group. We couldn't have a larger sample size of similar events. Right. So, so it's like, I think what you're doing is you're using language to, to construct a context that would seem completely indeterminate, but really it's an artificial example because uh, it, it, it is determined. It's just that there's no way for us humans to know what determined it because it was a one-off event. Similarly, you know, why did the, the North win the civil war? Um, you know, it, it, it would be possible in principle to be very deterministic about this if we had enough like if we could simulate this and maybe this will be true in the future, like with computer simulation, we're kind of getting there, but you know, it would be, it would take forever to simulate all of the known variables in the civil war. But if you could somehow create a system where all of the major mechanisms were in play, people's basic worldviews, their material states, um, uh, um, their, the, the personality distributions of people in the military all during the time, all of these things, uh, you would be able to get a fairly precise answer about what sorts of events led to the closing of the civil war. 
so it's answerable in principle. It's not answerable in practice because of the limitations of our instruments and our perception. But we're not therefore talking about a world that is completely indeterminate. We're just we're just noting that in in many cases we will not be able to understand the determinacy of a situation. But that doesn't mean it wasn't determined. Let me just say, I, Marshall, I, I can see that there is a stochastic element uh, to reality, meaning a, a seemingly random element to reality, especially in the micro level of quantum mechanics. Um, uh, it does seem that way, but it's, it's, it's really unclear right now uh, whether or not that indeterminacy is a result of our own limitations of our own tools, not at the quantum mechanical level. The, the, that, it really does seem that at, at the, the very micro level of reality, there's, there's a, there's, you know, particles can kind of, um, you know, there, there, there is no way to determine their position uh, before assessing it. So, so there is a real true hard indeterminacy, it seems, at the quantum mechanical level. Um, but if we're talking about the macro physical, macro biological level, uh, yeah, there, there, there is randomness there, but it's unclear if the randomness there is just a result of the fact that we're not measuring all the variables mm. or our tools aren't up to the task. So, so I absolutely can see that there is the appearance of randomness in the macro biological, macro social world. Um, but I, I, I don't know if that randomness is encoded in reality the way it seems to be at the quantum mechanical level, or if it's just a result of our... Uh, incapacity to to measure things in their totality because the world is just so complicated mm, i see what you're saying there's this issue of of language though for me and i'm it's really difficult to for me to put my finger on it but i think when you said like it's predictable in principle but not in practice i think that humans are bound to be in practice in a sense yeah. and that and that given that there is a there is a randomness given our lack of knowledge of all the variables. And we're, so, and we're making decisions often based on that randomness or we're just playing with the randomness in this example. Like, and that's the thing that I don't think could be predictable. Like say, um, here's an example. Say I use a magic eight ball to figure out what I wanna do. Uh, like you could, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm having a hard time thinking about how that could be even hypothetically predictable. Oh, um, like it's so the, easy the, predictable. The motor movements of the ball. So the no, oh, sorry, I mean specifically. My bad. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just I meant specifically. I should have said the thing that you would do based on what the eight ball said. Like if I go, I'm gonna go to school or not based on what the eight ball says. That's the thing I don't think is predictable, given that the randomness is injected by the eight ball. So it, 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 that that timeline only becomes predictable retrospectively. I don't understand how it could be predictable. The, how the reading of the magic eight ball. So what message shows up on the magic eight ball can be predictable or what, what is, what can't be predictable in this example? Um, whether I do or don't go to school. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it's a, you're talking about rolling a dice. So, yeah. so because a dice exists and I can make decisions on the basis of the roll of a dice, therefore I have agency. That's how, that's the logic. I think so, because I think that that means that in principle, what you do next is unpredictable. So it's an unweighted die and I'm throwing a die and uh, whatever the number comes up determines what I'm going to do. Next. Um, and that- I haven't even done it yet. And that means I have agency. It's just a weird use of the term agency. So if I decide that I will not be the determinant of my decision, then I have agency. That's the argument you're making. No, because you, you have decided the scope conditions for deciding, mm -hmm. right? So you're still making a decision 
Um, but so that, but that's, but I'm, not, I'm not making the decision about whether to go to school. I'm not, I, I get that no, I no, made no. the decision to use a dice, but, but right, I'm not right. making the decision. So it, you're defining agency by the absence of agency. I'm defining agency by the indirectness or the randomness or the indeterminacy uh, that is possible with agency. And I think that's the only way, like, I'm, I'm interested, maybe we should have talked about <laughs> what do we even mean? Because to me, it seems like the only way that I would think that agency exists is if in principle, people are unpredictable. That's that to me, that that would be dispositive proof of agency. If I was Laplace's demon and I couldn't predict what you, Kevin, do, you have to be an agent. Like the, what else could you be? Like, um, is that how you think about it? What is agency as a, as a definition, not just as, a, as an action or like rolling a dice is, is not literally, I mean, maybe that is what agency is for you. It's, it's um, I, but I mean, to me, you're just, you're, you're explicitly not being agentic in that situation. You're, you're letting the dice determine what you're going to do. So it's defining agency by the lack of agency, which I, that, that's where I'm stuck. Well, but I've um, said the, also, the dice could be predictable. The, the the dice roll could be predictable if you were looking at the the kind of the the microcurrents of the air with each flip. Um, uh, if if you looked at the you know the position of the dice before you threw it uh, mm -hmm. and the momentum and the, and the 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 the, the, the torque, uh, you know, it, it possibly it is predictable. I mean, I don't know, um, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't even concede that a dice is truly random at the macrophysical level. I don't think it's like a, a gluon or a quark. Uh, I don't think it's in a superposition. It's nothing like that. It's a macrophysical object subject to current and momentum and all of that. Go the ahead. randomness isn't in the dice though. It's it. The randomness is an emergent. The randomness is a property of the interaction between my intention, my scope conditions, and the dice. That's where the randomness is. And and what's unpredictable isn't the the fall of the dice. It's my future action based on the dice whether i go to school or not that's the and people but the thing is is like people do this all the time we are constantly doing things like this we just don't think of it like that uh, mm -hmm. like we ask kevin what should i do you tell me you're to me well i know you so it, it, but if i went up and i asked a stranger in a plane um or some something like that or sometimes people are surprising to you and you're like well like i wouldn't have it guessed that you would say that but i'm still gonna go with it you're a dice we're, we're treating so many things as dice. And that's, that's the creation of the indeterminacy and therefore the unpredictability in principle. To me, that's the, that's the kicker. And then it's like, well, if it's unpredictable in principle and people are creating, if people are creating this unpredictability, which stems from, it's not a thing. The unpredictability isn't attached to a thing. It's attached to our interactions with our environment, a specific environmental interaction that would be with the, within certain conditions, that would be where the indeterminacy and the randomness is. And I totally agree with you. This isn't how the vast majority of people live their lives. I think that the vast majority of people are predictable by social scientists because they're not, because they haven't embraced the freedom of their existence. Um, like, that's why I think that personality traits are stable. I think these are habits um, or a version of a habit, right? But I think that there is, I think that the human being has the capacity to act this way. And given that capacity, and this is like Kierkeg this is a kind of a Kierkegaardian argument. So let's let's bring it back down to a kind of like, so like, like for me, I'm trying to figure out, you know, like I have these plans, right? Like I want to go go back to grad school. I want to be a clinical psychologist. I'm going to do that, I think. And I've been trying to figure out, you know, like, well, what kind, how should I prepare? What should I do? Is that even what I want to do? 
Um, and I think that my decision, like if you were to say there's a Marshall worldview, my it would have to be whatever I use to make decisions like that. Um, and I don't see how I could use science to do that. Like if I go like, well, what should, what should I become? Yeah, that's the question. What should I become in the future that hasn't been created? That's the thing. And those are the, those are the most important kinds of decisions that shape people's lives, right? Those are the kinds of decisions that are most important to people. Yeah. Since science is, since science, as I understand it as a method, right? I think of science as a tool. Since the tool of science can only be used after I have set the scope conditions, after I've answered the question, right? Or, or after I've set some, some condition to, uh, that will provide my answer based on something, right? Um, that's, those are the kinds of decisions and questions and that I don't think the scientific worldview, that I don't think science can, can address. Do you think that they can? That does, does science help you answer those questions for your life? Um, well, first of all, I think, uh, the, the, a salient point is that, and I'm going to always keep coming back to this is that whether or not science is a worldview, uh, it is, it is one, and, and this is true for all of nature. This is true for all of science. Any, anything we can know, know is relative to other things. It, every reality mm. is comparative. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, is religion going to tell you what you should do Marshall uh in a way that you think is like fully satisfying and and will guarantee your ascent and I'm going to say no it's not going to be able to do that sometimes it will work sometimes it won't it's just based on the intuitions of the preacher and maybe their intuitions work here and they don't otherwise and but it's going to be hit or miss so um it really it, it boils down to all you know a politician is going to have an opinion about what you should do uh mm. it, it boils down to which of these worldviews if we want to call them that uh, are most evidence-based, most rational, most logical, and most self-critical. That's really it. And so is science going to uh, 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 give you a perfect answer, you individually? Are scientists going to be able to do that? Uh, no, because there's so much, so many variables that are hard to know and so on and so forth. Uh, but is religion, politics, are, are, that we all admit these are worldviews, are they doing any better? My argument is no, they're qualitatively worse at, 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 at um, discerning what might make you happy or what might give you meaning. So that's the first point, that, that, that science mm. is qualitatively better than these other ways of doing it. So whether we grant that science is somehow perfect or ideal in its ability to do it, it's, it's better than what else is out there. So uh, just simply by virtue, and, and look, I'm, I, I am so skeptical and cynical about scientists. Okay, I think, I think we give degrees to people who don't deserve it. I think most people with PhDs are sillier than, than people without PhDs. There, there are certain beliefs that are so stupid, you'd have to be highly educated to believe it. Uh, in other words, kind of indoctrinated into a pseudo cult. So I am extremely skeptical of higher education. I think it's going down the toilet. I'm embarrassed to have a PhD most days. Okay, having said that, uh, it, it is still the case that, that science writ large is more self-critical more concerned with evidence, falsification, and epistemological challenge than I see in those with political worldview or religious worldview. And, and to some extent, this is institutionalized. So the process of peer review is, is it's forced on you. Um, you know, that's not necessarily true if you're, depending on the church you're, you're working in, you know, you're not necessarily required to go through a process of peer review where Muslims and Buddhists critique your Christian interpretation, right? So, so, so there's that. Um, the second thing, though, is 
Um, so it's comparatively better, but um, in terms of being able to give you data and, and, and information that might guide the decision to what will make you happy. But on top of that, I, I really don't think it's that complicated. I mean, you say you want to be a therapist, um, stab in the dark. If Jordan Peterson never existed, uh, do you think you would have come to this so quickly? Or, 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 you know, any other therapist, whatever, you know, who's out there. So like, on the one hand, we can say, well, I can't exactly predict it, Marshall, for you and what's going to give you meaning because it's so complicated. But on the other hand, it's really not that complicated because we're both primates and uh, we both really strongly respond to status. Um, and uh, we, we, we idolize uh, high status people. We want to merge with them. We want to be like them. We think that that is meaningful. Were we like them? This is just part of what it means to be a human being. So it is complicated and no Marshall, I can't predict exactly what you're going to do. Nobody can in practice. Um, however, uh, I'm willing to bet just as a social psychologist or whatever you want to call me that um, I could uh, get a lot of the variance in your decision. And it's going to have to do with what sort of uh, primates in your environment you think are really, really smart and really, really high status and really, really important. Uh, and the more you start to merge with those individuals you define like that, the more your life is going to feel meaningful occupationally. So there might be other sectors of your life that don't feel meaningful, but, um, but you know, I, I just don't think it's a super complicated issue. And uh, I think that philosophy obstructs and confuses us on this matter more than it helps. Uh, you're, you're a primate. You're, 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 a, you're a highly emotional, social, uh, symbolic um, primate. Uh, what's going to give you meaning is not going to be super complicated to figure out. Uh, it's going to be hard to determine precisely uh, simply because of the limitations of our toolkit and, and time. But uh, I, I don't know if it's so complicated. I mean, look, if, if you become a therapist and you realize that in your job, it's hard for you to either, either seek the status of those individuals you looked up to when you went into it, or it's you know, the job is different than, than how those individuals you looked up to portrayed it or something like that, then that's my prediction that, oh, this job is going to start to give you less meaning because it's harder and harder for you to merge with those individuals symbolically, even I would say, I think physiologically, I think when you watch Jordan Peter or whoever, you are in fact physiologically merging with them. Uh, you're anticipating when they're going to stop talking. You're imagining how you would respond. You know, th this all has electrical and chemical correlates. So, so your, your ability to merge with these individuals that you look up to that, that constitute models, uh, role models for you, uh, that will confer your life with meaning, but it's going to be impossible to completely merge with them. And so to the degree that you, you can't, or you don't feel like you're realizing the status that that they have or something, there's some kind of, some kind of wrench in the goal there, um, then meaning is going to be, it's going to seem like it's harder and harder to get or harder and harder to maintain. So, so on the one hand, so let me just summarize here that, that, that a scientific worldview is going to provide us with a better understanding of what meaning is and how to obtain it than, than these other worldviews, simply by virtue of its relatively greater, but still deeply pathetic, self-criticality, uh, self-reflection, uh, a commitment to data and evidence. Science today is deeply pathetic about those things, but it's better than religion. It's better than politics. And then, and then next, predicting your what, what will give you uh, meaning specifically is is going to be impossible for me to do in this lifetime in practice. I do think it's in principle possible if I could somehow clone you and so on and so forth. You know, mm. um, and uh, and ultimately that meaning isn't that complicated, and that philosophy 
is just, you know, what these guys did for all this time because they had no science really. And so they just kind of sat back in an armchair and tried to make things as complicated as possible. And then other people read it and they go, oh, this is so complicated. They must be geniuses. And, and that's what kind of carried philosophy along for a really long time. If something was really complicated and hard to understand, they must be geniuses. And so we'll just keep teaching it. I mean, try to get through Hegel, try to get through Kant, try to get these guys, you know, are, are constitutionally incapable about being kind of concise and clear about things. Very bright men, no doubt. But, um, you know, it, it's possible for, for you know, just because we can talk about meaning in this very, very complex way doesn't make it the case that meaning is complicated at the level of evolutionary biology and social psychology. It just means that we can talk about things and make them complicated. Hmm. I think there's a, I agree with you about, okay, so I agree with you that science would be the best tool if I wasn't me to predict what my decision would be. And also I do think about how, <laughs> I don't know, I, it's impossible to say for me, you know, whether or not if, if I had never seen, you know, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson or other famous clinical psychologists that I look up to, I don't know, I, 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 there's no way that couldn't have impacted my decision, right? Um, but the thing that gets me is that I think that's an example of the inside outside system problem of like, um, it's only science is useful as a tool if I'm not me to predict me. But if I'm me, it's not useful as a tool to decide. And that's the thing I really think. And so there's an, I think that decisions specific to an individual create meaning in the world in a way that is not, I think I'm, I think I do mean meaning in a different way um, than, than you do. Like in the sense, I, I view it as kind of existential um, in the sense that like, like lately I've been thinking about how like the meaning I want to make is I want to push back against um, what I see as people confining themselves uh, with mental health categories uh, that aren't um, that aren't well formulated, <laughs> yeah, or real. <laughs> I was trying to think of <laughs> yeah, that aren't real. <laughs> um, and I and and so that's the meaning. I that's the meaning I want to be right. I want to be that. I want to be a symbol of that. Mm -hmm. And. And that kind of meaning, it has to be intentional. It has to be intentional. Otherwise it's not meaningful to me. Mm. And given that, I don't see there, there's, there's such an individuality, a kind of singularity to that, um, that, I, that I don't think is captured in the scientific measurement of meaning. I don't think that that kind of existential meaning is scientifically measurable because it is lived out. It is created in time right now with my decisions that I make and the actions I take. Um, it's applied truth seeking. You, you just want to know what the truth is and you're just focusing on this domain. But I've chosen what truth I want to be. I've chosen what symbol I want to be. It's like, but that's, um, but that meaning, so like my living that out would be, that meaning is, is apart from me, I think is what I'm trying to say. It's not, it's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's a, it's a doing in the world that I care about. Um, and maybe caring is a feeling and maybe you could indirectly attach it like that, but, but I don't think it's, I don't think it would be complete. I don't think like if you took away all other worldviews and you only had, and, and again, I don't think that this is kind of an incoherent thought experiment to me, but since, since you say that there can be a scientific worldview, maybe, maybe it'll work. Um, if we only had the scientific worldview, I don't think we would have meaning at all. Oh, because, wow. yeah, because, because I think meaning is, 
something that like if because well first of all because everyone would think the same <laughs> and i think that meaning is a lot to do with why do you think honestly, everyone would think this why would everyone think the same well if everyone had the scientific worldview there, there is no one scientific that's like saying the religious worldview i mean there's going to be a litany of scientific oh worldview. okay wait. <laughs> religious worldviews of course yeah that's how worldviews are i mean people vary Holy there will what? be some common denominators yeah there will be some common denominators like uh like uh seeking out perspectives different from your own like thinking homogeneity and homophily are are are, are mm. restrictions on truth seeking like you don't see that in religions so, you know if if you are a christian like me then we will better find the truth but in a scientific world you know if i want to know what the truth is and i need to find someone who disagrees with me and we got to find a common ground so, mm. so yeah, I mean, there will be common denominators across scientific worldviews absolutely but but there will also be denominations of scientific worldview as there are denominations of religious worldview and and you know some of those my my sense and this is going beyond where i'm kind of doing the the kind of research now but my sense is that one way in which scientific worldviews will vary is um on their uh uh emphasis on 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 the importance of materialism on the kind of ontological reality of materialism so but but that's going to take us into a whole other place but but the point is is that no there is not a there is not the scientific worldview any more than there is the political worldview or the religious worldview. wouldn't but wouldn't some views just be more wouldn't we just be talking about views that are more or less scientific like what well, that's, that's the conversation we're having now in 2022 because humans are still you know where it, cultures are changing across deep history and we're just in a specific moment in time right now and so right now we're just, we don't even know if a scientific worldview is a thing, even though it's already a thing. Like I, I, the problem with the scientific worldview research is that academics are trailing the public. Uh, if, if you ask formerly religious people, they'll tell you they have a scientific worldview. Now they don't really know what they mean by that. They kind of like nature hikes. They believe in evolution. Uh, they don't go to church. They don't really know what the fuck, but, but they're going to, they're going to tell you that the way they view the world is kind of scientific. -y. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, this like Facebook page, I fucking love science. You know, you have all these people, trust the science during COVID-19. And that's going to be the new mantra of the left is trust the science. And there's only one science. Right. If you disagree, you're, you're bad and terrible, et cetera. But th these people are, are articulating the, 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 the pathetic beginnings of a scientific worldview that, that would have to be piecemeal and confused. And because this, this is a worldview that is new. And worldviews take a very long time to disseminate in the public. I mean, 500 years isn't going to do it. You know, the scientific worldview emerges only 500 years ago. Uh, we can push that back if we really want to. But but for the most part, it kind of emerges around 500 years ago. And it emerges among very well-to-do, comfortable men, for the most part, who are not really working and they have benefactors. And, you know, and, and but it's been spreading ever since. And, and now we're seeing it, you know, now it's the kind of thing I really believe if you took your dog to the dog park and you started talking to people and, and you said, you know, I have a kind of a scientific worldview. They're going to go, what are you talking about? You're not wearing a lab coat. They're going to say, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. And then you can kind of talk about what that means. So, but, but us scientists are like, scientific worldview, that's crap. Like, we're trailing the public on this. And, and I don't know why that is. Clearly, the public is developing something like a scientific worldview. It's less supernatural. It's more premised on self-reflection and, and self-criticism. Uh, and again, all of this is imperfectly and kind of pathetically applied in our everyday lives including in my own. I'm no priest of scientific worldview. I don't know, you know, but, but the point is, is that this worldview is emerging. It's bubbling up and it's been bubbling up and it's only going to become more differentiated and more diverse in terms of how people interpret what it means to be self-critical, for example. Um, 
Ooh, uh, okay. I I don't understand what you're saying. Okay. I don't, what are the bounds of, what are the necessary conditions, I guess, for a worldview to, to merit the description scientific? Uh, there's gonna be many different things. Um, uh, I think, uh, most importantly, it's going to be a, 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 an emphasis on honesty over social approval. And now I'm actually talking about the actual data we collected. I've, I've, I've been analyzing just a little pilot of it. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that seems to be a major distinguisher. So, so more mm. religious people think that you should just be nice to people and get along with people and not, not be nice to people, but, but kind of capitulate. I don't want to infer that there's niceness here. It's just, it's just go along, just, just conform. Mm -hmm. uh, and that conformity is more important than honesty. Um, you will see the reverse of that polarity in a scientific worldview where honesty becomes more important than conformity. However, the, the, how important honesty is, is going to vary from person to person in a scientific worldview. But what they will all share is the importance of honesty over conformity. Now, when some people it, might say they'll risk honesty at the mm -hmm. expense of upsetting people. Other people will say, I won't do that. I'm not going to conform. I'll just keep it to myself. Um, you know, so, so, so how the importance of honesty over conformity is expressed will differ, but mm. that honesty is more important than conformity is going to be something you're going to see in a scientific worldview more so than in a religious worldview. And I suspect, although I don't have data for it right now, uh, over a political worldview as well. That's fascinating. Did that, um, did that come out when controlling for political affiliation and stuff? I haven't, no, right. we don't, the sample oh, isn't big enough to, to have control. So these are all correlations, but I'll know the answer to that shortly. My hunch, Marshall, is that the scientific worldview is uh, something like Asperger's, um, mm -hmm. where yeah. uh, what is true is more important than, than the particular emotional state of the person you're talking to, even for them. In other words, if I tell you the truth, it's better for you in terms of your ability to calculate your next step in the world, even if it makes you sad or whatever. So, right. so there's a sort of benevolence in telling the truth. It's not just mm -hmm. so I don't feel bad about myself. It's good for other people to have accurate information, um, <clears throat> even if it upsets them. So this is something you would see in, in people with Asperger's or autism. So my, my hunch, again, no data on this, but this is where my theory mind is going, is that uh, humanity is becoming more uh, kind of, um, I mean, you know, the term Asperger's and autism, these are just placeholders. We don't really know what the fuck is going on. It has something yeah. to do with being easily overstimulated and having difficulty processing social information. So I think this is what it is to live in a world where you're interacting with many, many, many different people in many, many different tribes and groups. Uh, a lot of this computer, a lot of this uh, communication is computer mediated. It's there are a lot of one-off interactions with anonymous people. Modernity is a unique place compared to the small groups of hunter-gatherers we evolved in, and I, I think it's it's causing people to to ex to to display their behavior in a way that we can pathologize as Asperger's on the extreme level, but that subtly people are becoming, it's, it's harder and harder and harder to read the proper social cues in any given situation just because of how complex and diverse and rapid life moves right now in 2022. So, mm -hmm. so, so these propensities for, of, of human beings uh, influence how they view the world. And so, yeah, the scientific worldview is, it kind of looks Asperger-y, it kind of does. Um, but do, do I do I think that means that you have to have Asperger's to have a scientific worldview? No, I think it just means that that people's uh, the complexity of the world is changing, and 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 uh, the rapidity of the world is changing, and um, and and our worldviews are going to change along with it. 
And early adopters of the scientific worldview, yeah, they might be higher on the spectrum of Asperger's, but that doesn't mean that um, it won't spread to the larger population as more and more people start to express themselves in a way that, can, that, that we pathologize as Asperger's today, but that really is just the result of an animal trying to orient themselves to an extremely complicated sensory overloading information context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating about the, about the Aspiness. I, that, that's intriguing. Um, I, I wonder if it's because science is, about, is more about abstract knowledge and like if okay I thought of a a, I have I'm gonna try to approach this from one other angle I think because we disagree I I think about what about what truth is um and of course that's going to be a problem um I still I still cling to my my pragmatism which I'm realizing is is connected to my existentialism um but um here's the question which truths do we seek I think is like a, is like the number one is kind of like the question of life in a sense. And if I choose the, a religious worldview, if I choose, um, well, let's just use Christianity since I'm the most familiar with that. If I choose Christianity, well, now I have, um, an external reference point for a value structure that I can, I can translate to my individual life. Like I can, find instances of these different things, these different values in my life. And that will, I'll feel an external pressure given my commitment to this worldview to do them. Like if I'm, if I'm like a Baptist Protestant and I have an opportunity to, I don't know, have an affair, I might be like, I might be like starting to do it. And then I'll be like, oh my gosh, like I'll have like an emotional response. Cause I'll be like, oh, cause th- this is bad. According to the value system that I've bought into by buying into Christianity. I don't see anything quite like, I don't think that right now, given the way that science is today, I don't think that there's any correlate to that, where if I go, okay, I'm going to adopt a scientific worldview, it, I can apply science to answer certain questions, but again, I can't, I can't, it doesn't have a value structure within it for me to figure out Neither what to do. Religion. Neither does religion. You're- you have wait, 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 very, why not? Why uh, it doesn't have a value structure? No, 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 no. That This is the fallacy, is, is that religion and politics have this deep, meaningful structure of values and, and nothing else does. I mean, you, you'd have to be raised religion to really, religious to really buy that. So I'll give you an example. So you're cheating on your wife, and uh, the woman you're fucking is a better Christian than your wife in that she goes to church more <laughs> often, she reads the Bible more often, she can recite passages more precisely, you genuinely feel like when you're with her, yes, you're cheating on your wife and that's hor- horrible. But when, when you're with this woman that you're cheating with, uh, you, you, you feel like she really does understand you and, and really does understand your spiritual mission in life. Uh, you know, th- this isn't so clear cut because the woman you're cheating with is a better Christian. And, and you really do feel this internal sense of closeness with this woman, but you're cheating on your wife. And so, you know, yes, the Bible is going to say or a preacher is going to say cheating is wrong. Um, but they're also going to tell you that finding the right Christian woman that really gives you a deep sense of connection is the right thing. And that sometimes, you know, it's, you know, maybe we, we find the right path uh, 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 after becoming wayward. So you were wayward in your cheating, but you found the path, you found the right woman. And, you know, it's sometimes it happens like that. So, you know, the point is, you can rationalize anything with religion and politics because they're not referring to data and evidence. 
So, so yeah, you, what you're doing is you're selectively interpreting a religious value and, and saying, look, this would give me guidance. And you're selectively ignoring all the ways that a religious person would rationalize any fucking behavior of any kind. And they do this. And, and, and you know, it's, it's not that science is, is somehow perfect in that way. It's just that, that relatively speaking, the, 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 the social pressure to appeal to data the social pressure to appeal to falsification and, and to appeal to uh, criticism from other people in that community in reference to data, et cetera, is greater. The relative emphasis on that is greater. So, so yeah, we can't just cherry pick a value from religion and say, look how this could guide me and then just sort of move on from there. Okay, but well, what, what about all of the possible ways that, 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 that any set of behavior could be rationalized by a religious worldview? Because it's not appealing to evidence, it's just appealing to intuition and being close to God. And you can define think, that in a lot of ways, as I just did with the cheating example. Totally. I, I totally hear on that. And, and, you know, I've seen my fair share of religious hypocrisy. Don't get, you know, don't get I me believe- started on that. Uh, you know, and like I, and I had this moment where I was like, literally I had this moment where I was like, well, am I going to be like, if I'm, am I going to go to seminary or not? You know, I'm a smart guy. Like, do I actually believe in God or not? Am I going to go to seminary? That's kind of how I saw it. And some people disagree with that. But, well, I guess I totally hear that objection. I think that's totally valid. But the thing that I'm going to, I don't even think that you're at least talking about that there's something to rationalize with the religion. Like if I'm like a certain Christian, like I have, I have to, for me, like what it means to say that I have the Christian worldview is, is to have a certain view about what's right or wrong in the abstract, whether or not, I guess I do that or not. Um, but hopefully I, I think I think if I actually have the worldview, I will likely, my behavior will at least hopefully most of the time match my worldview. Otherwise I'm lying about having that worldview, right? I don't actually have it. I'm faking it. And so if I actually have the worldview, I'm going to be acting in accordance with it some of the time. And then and by acting in accordance with the worldview, I would be acting in accordance with my understanding of the values uh, of that worldview. Mm-hmm. And, and of course I can rationalize it, but it's that first part of, I don't even see there being an equivalent set of values like that, that that can still be rationalized. I don't even see there being an existing set of anything remotely comparable with the scientific worldview. And that's my concern. Like, I'm not advocating, you know, I, I want to say, like, I'm not advocating a religious worldview. I'm not advocating any worldview, but I just don't the specific, well, I mean, I not right now, <laughs> but, um, but that's the thing is I don't even see an equivalent thing that could be rationalized with the scientific worldview. I, this is fascinating because I see it as a better way to rationalize. It not not only is it equivalent, it's superior. And I think a scientific worldview is a is a is a case of cultural evolution. I don't like. I mean, it's not really cultural evolution, mm-hmm. it's not like a cultural change, cultural development in a certain direction. Uh, but uh, but it's it's it, you know what's what happens to any system, any any complex interdependent um, system uh, is that accuracy of inputs needs to be optimized so that uh, any subunit of the system knows what's going on in the rest of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the scientific, I mean, if we really want to be big about this, that's what's happening with the scientific worldview emerging 500 years ago and spreading is that the global interconnected system of human beings uh, is, is needing to become more accurate about one another and about the relationships to each other and mm-hmm. the relationship to the natural world. Uh, otherwise the system won't become, in other words, the globalized world won't become more interconnected and uh, efficient and adaptable. So that's what's really happening. So saying that, you know, science has no way, I mean, in a scientific worldview, uh, in a scientific worldview, and there's probably variance around this to some extent, 
there is variance around this to some extent because because there are many different types of scientific worldviews. I'm sure I grant that, but 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 uh, the the import of accuracy is so much more relevant to you living your best life than it is in a religious worldview. Um, empirical accuracy, uh, uh, telling the truth, mm. uh, as opposed to conformity to tradition or conformity to the book. Uh, so so you know, in a scientific worldview, the best outcome for you is to be as accurate and honest as possible with your mistress and your wife. And what you will find doing that is that there are things your wife's not giving you that the mistress is and vice versa. And the best way to navigate that problem space, and it might be to find a third woman altogether, but the best way to navigate that problem space is to be as accurate and honest as possible and to try to be as careful and precise with how you understand your behaviors um, as possible. And, uh, and, and I think that, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that Christian preachers don't tell people to be honest. Honesty is a virtue. Um, but uh, there's a higher virtue in a religious worldview, which is uh, uh, oneness with God or closeness to God or something like that. Um, and, and, and so in, in that, the scientific worldview puts honesty and accuracy at the highest pedestal, maybe the highest pedestal in, uh, of the worldview. Um, this dictates, I think, a better course of action in the situation when you're cheating with your wife than you would be in a religious worldview where you're thinking, well, but with her, I feel closer to God. So I don't know if I really, you know, should tell my wife that she wouldn't understand that she's more distant from God. She doesn't read the book enough. You know, you're just going to go down a fucking rabbit hole of inaccuracy and um, and distance from your wife, potentially. So so I see it as better. I mean, you know, I, I've told you this before. I think morality and accuracy are the same thing. Um, uh, I don't think they're different concepts. I think so philosophers have been deeply confused about this for a very long time. Not all of them. Derek Parfit's an exception. Um, a lot of more I fully agree with you about that. I mean, I, I think that's an existentialist claim too. Like Sartre would, I think, agree uh, with that. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. But but what's interesting is that my my takeaway from that is very different. My takeaway is we are all God. And like our God that we want to worship is our goals, right? Like, like, I don't believe in, I don't believe in God in like a God way, but I do believe in making something of my life. When you say that truth is the same as morality, do you mean that, uh, what I am presumably what you mean is that anything that's good would therefore be furthering, furthering the pursuit of truth or furthering the discovery of truth? And that would be why it's good. Is that what, is that what you mean? No, no, just, just calibration. The process of calibration, calibrating to you, your emotions, the local environment. Calibration is best achieved with accurate inputs. I'm a, I think about this purely as a systems theorist, which is really what I am. I'm a systems theorist. So I, everything, I'm coming at this from that big perspective. So, so yeah, so uh, insofar as meaning and happiness uh, implicates calibration, which it has to, I mean, Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it has to. Uh, then, then, then the accuracy of inputs are going to uh, make your calibration process smoother and more efficient. And uh, but what are you calibrating to? Um, the environment, people. I mean, any, any oh, organism oh, oh. to the external world to other entities. Why aren't you calibrating to what you, Kevin McCaffrey, want to make of your life? Why is that not, to me, that would have to be the standard of calibration for that's you. A, that's an emergent, so these are not separate. So, so Kevin is not separate from people and environment. Kevin is those things. What about the Kevin that's not yet? Like you, you're going to live on, you have time left. I have time left. 
and that's uh-huh. yeah not coming that to me there's the calibration to the future a future that doesn't exist yet that's what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to calibrate myself to how i want to be mm-hmm. not to anything else mm-hmm. right so i don't understand i mean it's weird to me that you believe that truth is the same as morality but you don't believe in but you're not like an existentialist like i don't understand what 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 is your goal like what do you want the world to be like and why this is just philosophical garbage uh, why because well, it shaped doesn't it shape I, I, okay i want the like, world i want the world to be like chuck e cheese in disneyland and i want pizza everywhere and i want everybody to be happy <laughs> and having having good sex like, and having the like band for real i for real like you, you want you presumably like you're here you want to um we're talking about the scientific worldview it's good if people are more aware of science of particularly if they can think in terms of statistics that's a huge problem right i agree that that's good well, I it, guess just, I just, no, it just is it just is i mean it just is you you can't raise a baby human being in a world where everything that happens to them that hurts them they go to a hospital with tools and electricity and and credentialed you, you can't raise a baby in that world and 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 have them not think that evidence and data and accuracy are important to their health it's just mm-hmm. is. I'm not. I'm not in the business of saying what's good or bad. I mean, if you're asking Kevin, sure, I have all kinds of stupid opinions. Who cares? Uh, it just is. The scientific worldview is. It's what. It's what emerges as people's life courses and life history start to change, become more naturalistic, become uh, more aware of natural laws in the natural world, have to interact with wildly distinct people. Um, so your your sort of perceptual biases and hunches start to be wrong more often. Mm. So you start to value interpersonal accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. It just is. I mean, I, any philosopher who's going to come in and start to wax about good or bad is doing something else than figuring out how the system is changing and how, in other words, the globalized interactions of electrical impulses, basically, between a certain type of animal, how that is changing and how... Uh, what we want to call a worldview. So our cosmology, our ontology, our epistemology, we haven't even defined a worldview, but it's, it's for me, it's cosmology, ontology, epistemology, axiology, and praxeology. Um, uh, Cosmology is what are the circumstances we find ourselves in ontology? What is real epistemology? How do we know what's real? And then praxeology and axiology just have to do with how we, what we should do, what, what, what we think is good. So honesty over conformity, for example. Um, But, but, you know, people are going to have, local opinions about what's good or bad, but I, I'm trying to also come at this as what is. Mm. I, I like what you said there. And I really like how, I'm glad that you specified what the worldview is. <laughs> We've been at this for hours and I, I should have, yeah. The, the thing though, to me is like, I've been reading this book in this book club that I'm in by this guy, Jason Blakely. Part of the book really annoys me, but part of it I really like. Uh, he talks about what he calls the double hermeneutic effect. Um, which is just a fancy term for this idea that the way that social scientists talk, the, the, the kinds of ideas that they write about in their books, that those become the interpretive frameworks that the readers adopt. And that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy or yeah, more of a self-fulfilling prophecy for the social scientists. So this is this is kind of like a and he he talks about this. This is a broad scale placebo effect type argument where, oh, um, where the like he talks about the rational actors thing. And it's been too long since I read it. But he basically argues that like once 
a bunch of people started saying that we're all rational actors in this particular way, then people were more likely to understand their decisions, the decisions that are coming at them from the future or, or in the now, um, they're trying to, they, they understand those decisions in the categories that they acquire through reading those books. And that changes the future um, because it, it calibrates the future according to those categories. It's still subjective hegemony. What, what you just described to me, what this guy's doing. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I guess I am a, well, why, why aren't you a subjective hegemonist? Like you only live once. Reality is not just based on what we think. That's why it's not, it's solipsism. It's soft solipsism. Look, well, reality tomorrow, so far, but huh? tomorrow I, I just, I, today, what I decide today uh, will totally affect tomorrow. So like, sure. But what, but what, 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 uh, what you will experience as a decision is being driven by lower order physiological and electrical processes that you have no introspective awareness to. And so concluding that you, Marshall, just sort of are, are floating around up here making these autonomous decisions is not actually what's going on. Now, once a decision has been reached and, and your prefrontal cortex makes you aware of it, that might have, that, that I think does have, I think the evidence is clear, that does have a feedback effect. It has a cascading effect on you, but, but it's not just a, a skyhook from heaven that's just coming in and, oh, I made a decision. That it's, it's, the decision is bubbling up from lower order physiological and chemical processes, uh, electrical processes, and then you're becoming aware of it, and then it's feeding back down and, then, and, 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 and enhancing those earlier electrical and, and chemical um, uh, dynamics that produced the higher order awareness that you made a decision in the first place, if that makes sense. So these decisions are bubbling up from electricity and chemistry. You're becoming subjectively aware of it at some point. And then that subjective awareness is that further uh, uh, enhancing or um, driving the lower order electrical and chemical impulses. And it's just going up and down the causal chain like that. There's, there's, you're not, there's no point at which you somehow separate from the chemistry of your body or electricity of your body are just, just autonomously just making decisions. Um, you know, that's not how it works. Um, so, uh, and, and again, like this would be a, an issue of like molecular biology and, um, uh, bioelect bioelectrics. That, that's what we're talking about here. So, so if my claims are wrong, they're wrong on, on those counts. Um, but, but the thing is, is, so you mentioned the rational choice thing. So, so I'm an economist and I think the world, I think everybody's rational and I'm super rational. And, and what you wanna say or what this author wants to say is all oh, that, that frames my whole world. So if I think I'm rational, then, then I'll start to act more rational. And look, that, that's not at all how it works. The, the yeah, way yeah. it works, it, like Antonio Damasio uh, figured this out in a book called Descartes' Error, which you probably, a lot of people have read this book. He's a, he's a fantastic neurologist who among other things discovered that um, every decision you make, no matter how rational it feels to you, is being tagged with, with emotion markers. So um, in other words, there, there's, there's, there's these connections, these network connections to these, these subcortical parts of your brain that are processing emotions, even when you're doing like a, a math problem. And, and what's going on here? So let's say you're sitting down and doing your budget for, the for your family, and you're thinking, all right, I, I need to save this amount of money you think you're just like a calculator. There's nothing going on other than rationality. And you can tell yourself that and you can do your budget calculation and you can walk away. I'm a very rational person. But if I were to put you in an MRI machine while you're making that uh, budget, in fact, what I'm going to see is when you see grocery, you're going to tag that with a certain emotion having to do with your connection to your friends, or, uh, sorry, kids or, or, or wife. What it means to buy groceries isn't going to be a purely non-emotional concept to you. It will at the subjective level because you believe yourself to be highly rational. 
But at the level of the brain, what's happening is is these all these concepts that we're we're rationalizing with are tagged with various levels and various intensities of emotion. And mm-hmm. this is this is how we're able to prioritize that groceries are more important than a trip to Cancun later in the year. We can say, oh, it's just not rational to go to Cancun. But really what's happening at the level of the brain is that Cancun is being tagged with less emotion than, than groceries are. And as a result, you think, right? So, so what we think is going on in our thought process is, is not something to care about when we want to understand how our thought process is actually working. I, I, I really like that. I like Damasio's research. I think the thing that bugs me though, is that we often, is that we have the capacity to form our future emotions. Like it, just a super simple example. For a while, I was trying to drink um, V8 juice, the like tomato vegetable juice that's supposed to be really healthy. Awesome. And I would force myself, I hated it so much. And I would, I drink it for a long time. And I, I finally, I got to the point where I actually kind of liked it. I changed, wow. and I, but that was very intentional. Like I was like, I made a plan for the future. I said, I'm going to set up, I'm going to, I'm and, and all of these things are environmentally mediated. Like, I think like what you said about it, about top down, bottom up with electrical currents, that's taking the individual in a vacuum, decontextualizing them from the environment. But I think that like who we are is constant. We like, we are in the world. So I'm right now, like my, my next moment is going to be mediated by you know, my headphones, what you say, what's on the screen, will the internet, you know, have a problem again. And so like, when I, when I make, when I use tools like my phone and I like set a reminder and I put the juice out in the refrigerator while I see it tomorrow, tomorrow, I, I have structured my tomorrow. Um, I have made, I have structured, I have shaped, or I've set some conditions for how reality will, will unfold. And eventually, if I keep doing that, then my emotions will catch up to my intentions. And then I'll start making decisions based on emotion that I'm not making now that I hope I will make later. Yeah. Um, how do, do you think that, the, I, I, but here's the thing I think you're, you would say is like, well. I grant all of that. Everything you just said, 100%. Right. <laughs> you would just say that each instance of intention and planning is emotionally, so it's like, a, it's an infinite regress. Yeah. I guess I'm curious, Kevin, like, what what would it take for you to be convinced that see part of it is is like I, I i'm i'm sure like a definition of agency that doesn't include environmental influence doesn't really make any sense but at the same time um uh but it's hard to not let that environmental influence wash over um and but the thing that's weird is are we not part of the environment too yeah, yeah. Um, so like, um, I guess like, what would it take to prove that we did have um, free will in some, in like, even in like a, whatever the most minimal would be uh, with, with agency, what would it take to prove it to you? So first of all, I guess the environment is critically important. I, I don't even just, dis- I don't even think it's really useful to distinguish the individual from the environment. I think this is another yeah. artifact of bad philosophy. Um, and uh, in um some areas of science there's a term used called not in sociology i mean we're way fucking we're like 100 years from being accurate about anything but but there's a term outside of sociology in um in the natural sciences called the hollow biome the idea being that if you were to really account for all the colonies of bacteria on your skin in your mouth all over your body 
and, and your, your immune system is predicated on the health and uh, flourishing of those colonies of bacteria. So you, you would just die if you didn't have those bacteria, um, uh, particularly gut bacteria. And so, um, you know, wh where does you end and the environment begin? Uh, that bacteria has a different DNA, has a different genetic structure than you do. It's different from you. It's a different animal than you are. Yet you are dead without it. Uh, so yeah, no, the, 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 mm. the environment is critically important. And when I see people talking together in a group, that's an electrical network. It's just an electrical network at such a level of complexity that we've had a hard time accurately mapping it. Uh, but that's all it is. When you're in right now, all that's happening is is an electrical connection between two electrical systems, uh, and we're just calibrating. We're just kind of uh, switchboarding what electric uh, impulses happen where in our brains, and that's what it means to have a conversation. So, individual and environment are are very very closely linked. Okay. Mm. The, the second thing, it's interesting. My answer is going to be unsatisfying. I don't think, I think philosophers has so fucked up the word agency that it's a meaningless word. So when you say, Kevin, what, is, what, what would have to happen for people to have agency? It's, it's the same to me as Kevin, what would happen for people to have <laughs> I, I don't even know what the, I mean, if we're talking about like, if we're talking about an animal's actions, yeah, the, that's going to have to do with this rhythmic mimicking and synchronizing with local electrical currents in their environment, other people. Um, it's going to have to do with their past experience. I mean, we can just talk about the gen genetics and all the things you already know about. If you're asking me what would it need, what would need to happen for people to be able to make decisions independent of that electrical, uh, ecological nexus, uh, that's not even a question that makes sense to me. Yeah, because who are what are those people constituted? What right. what, is, what are those people? Right. Yeah, totally. I think, so this gets me to, I mentioned in our conversation last time, and I know that we've been going for a while, um, is the indispensability argument, which I see as, is like kind of like a fallback, but also pretty good in the sense that if we, um, I think that the most scientific worldview, I, I think that as you get more scientific, you get more general. Um, and like you start to, because you start to come up with these macro variables uh, that are, and like many of them that are creating the specific instances um, that are happening. But what's weird about that is I'm me, I'm here. I'm like, I am specific. I like, they're, like whatever, like whatever I, whatever I could possibly be is specific. And my life is specific to me. And that's, it's that generality versus specificity problem. And, but say, say um, people started to see the world in a more, in terms of more general things, um, uh, in terms of generalities of like scientific laws and such like that, I still, um, what I don't get is even in that world, I would still want to talk about you. Like, no, I, I think in the most scientific world, the most scientific world is something that is not viewed through the human eyes. It's something that is uh, uni like universal, I guess. It's an aspect of the world rather than the aspect of the individual uh, person. And so the even I, 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 the problem I have is like the more scientific you get, the less ability to have people uh, to have you. And, and, and if that's the case, then the, the language for me starts to fall apart. 
where it's like, what, I'm not even sure how to talk about the world and my experience. I don't even know how to talk about anything if I can't even talk about myself in the world, my specific situation in the world, which is kind of ascientific in a way, or at least non-scientific. Like my experience in the world is a data point, right? Um, and that's, I think that's the kind of crux of it is like, do you see that as, how do you do, how do you think about yeah. that? No, I, I think it's a good question. Uh, I think it's another, you know, sub, this subjective hegemony is rearing its head again. And, and the way it's rearing its head here is that the world of our conscious experience does not appear to be probabilistic. Things happen or don't happen. But in fact, the world nature is probabilistic um, uh, it, it, from, from, from our practical standpoint. I think if it were Laplace's demon in principle, yeah, we could figure it all out. But, but practically speaking, like, yeah, and I think that's what you're saying. And I think that's a good point that, that science is going to be able to confer, give to you some sort of probably, probability distribution about what you're likely to find meaningful or what you're likely to do next. Now, I, 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 I don't know, though, if that's an intrinsic part of the scientific worldview. I think the, the biggest uh, uh, hiccup in trying to figure out what a scientific worldview is is, is needing to distinguish between what it is today in primitive ass 2022. Cause I always think like how mm. 5,000 years from now, gonna, 2022 is gonna be sad. Okay, we're gonna be, it's gonna be pathetic. Like we're so ignorant, we don't, okay. So is, is I don't wanna only define the scientific worldview in terms of how it's understood right now today. I wanna understand what a scientific worldview is in itself, some sort of, some sort of constructing fundamental aspects of it that will stay constant. And maybe none will, I don't know. But, but I think that today, the information science can give you is highly probabilistic. I don't know if that's necessarily part of a scientific worldview. Uh, it, the future is gonna look like a place where you have very, very accurate information about your biological, your internal physiological state moment to moment. It's gonna be extremely accurate. It's only to get more accurate. We're gonna have a better understanding of the relationship between your physiological state and your subjectivity. Uh, we're going to have um, extremely sophisticated computer modeling uh, where you can actually in input different states of your body. Uh, we'll, we'll have very accurate environmental and sensory detectors as well. This is going to be necessary for any kind of virtual reality, but we can leverage them to actually understand something about our, our sensory experience. So you're going to be able to create data files of your moment to moment experience that are extremely accurate. And you're going to be able to run the Marshall 300, 400 years from now is going to be able to run simulations in, in, in an extreme complexity. Um, and, and so I'm just, I don't know what that future is going to look like, but mm. I'm not willing to grant that scientific knowledge is always broad and generalized and stereotyped and on average, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I think it could just be that the accuracy of our instruments right now terms of measuring our bodies, measuring our environments is just so crude. Mm. And so I, I always do this whenever I think, well, science can't do this or scientific worldview can't do that. Do I mean that it can't do that in 2022? Or do I, do I mean that it can't do that ever? That there's nothing about the world that could change that can confer to me some sort of specified path that is data-driven and evidence-based? That's a, that's a really good point. I like, I like how you made I like how you made that so concrete with how the the scientific research would create the scientific scientific methods of measurement that we could use as individuals. Exactly. Although weirdly, 
weirdly, it's kind of like in that future world, it's almost like I feel like what I'm the aspect that I'm trying to focus on becomes like way more relevant. Like the more control, like, and this is, I guess this makes sense. The more control you have, the more power you have. This is Spider-Man. The more power, the more responsibility. And so like the more power you have over your body, uh, over your future body rather, um, the more the more control you have, but control for what? See, to me, the question becomes even the existential question becomes, see, I think what you're, what you're calling subjective hegemony, I think might be my, I want, I care way more about living a good life myself today than I do about science. Yeah. I, you always, know, yeah. And yeah. I, but I think that'll always be the, I think that's gonna, I think that's um, most people always, like, I, or not most people, I think that's, I think that's a lot of people, you know, like, like, what, what do I, what do I want to accomplish today? What do I want to symbolize? But I think, and I think that the, the dichotomy of that, that you care about your life more than science, that, that the fact that that's a dichotomy to you, I think is a historical artifact of being in 2022. Mm, interesting. Okay. I don't think that's actually a necessary distinction between your understanding of science and your understanding of you. But what about, see, I don't understand because so many people, if that were the case, that would be, that would apply to you too, right? So, but we have different visions for, I mean, I'm, maybe not, but let's say we do. Well, we have different visions of what a good society would be. Let's say we do, we're probably, we're probably pretty similar, but let's say we're pretty different. Let's say you are, you're um, an extremist from Saudi Arabia or something. And um, so how could science be both of us? Because our goals are so different. Like our visions for the future are so different. How could it be the same? uh well i mean you're you're premising that they're so different uh um well, like like we'll take like even democrats and republicans like their ideal society would be so different yeah so yeah, how yeah. how can they yeah, well, I, if you walk up to them and you're like both goals are science inaccuracy just just there's inaccuracy. just a lot more inaccuracy in 2022 than there will be in 2500 yeah inaccuracy mm-hmm. yeah i mean look if 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 I thought that there were 10 million abortions happening uh, every six months, or let, let's say like, uh, how many people are in the US? 330 million. Well, I think like some enormous percentage, like 33 million people are getting abortions. Like some, it's still a small percentage, but a, but a very like, it's that substantial quantitatively. Um, then yeah, I'm going to be much more fearful about abortion and ruining families or something like that. Then if I have the accurate number, which is some, I forget, I don't want to be wrong about it, but it's way beneath that. I mean, we're talking like in the 30,000 range. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think accuracy is big. If, if everybody was, ac- I think it, it's everything, actually. I think uh, if everybody had an equal understanding of the actual state of reality, and I don't think we're going to be able to do this because we're so brilliant. We need computers helping us to do this. We need general, we need artificial intelligence to help us do this. We need simulations to help us do this. But if everybody was equally accurate about the world, their, their worldviews would be, uh, rather, th- not their worldviews necessarily, but their, um, their priorities would be very similar. And, and the policies that they want to advocate would be very similar. Now, they would not be identical because personalities differ. Um, uh, so, so I don't think that we'd be in some sort of singular world where everybody thinks exactly the same if we all had access to accurate information. But there would be a, an astonishing convergence about uh, 
what policies are good and what policies are bad and 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 how best to pursue various goals. There would be an incredible degree of convergence. You would still have differences based on personality, life experience, stuff like that. But I think a big reason why we see these massive disputes between tribes and society, the, 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 the best explanation for this, in my opinion, is the role of inaccuracy. Wow. You you were you're shockingly optimistic about that to me. Like I I like to me uh to me that would be a monoculture and like I like I don't think there are certain axioms. Let's take up the abortion. I think that's a good example. Like I think that even if everyone had the same information, um, regardless of a, like at, at what at, at this point doesn't even really matter what the accuracy is. But like if everyone has the same information, yeah. um, let's say it's accurate. Let's just say it's super accurate information. I think that they would still reach totally, uh, people would still reach very different conclusions that would impact, like some people would be like, well, like Rick, right now, um, people are saying that life begins at conception. Like the definition of life is not something that I think can be determined scientifically. And that's like the, one of the most fundamental categories possible for our existence. Do you think that? Yeah, like, well, well there, there, there's many axes of accuracy. There's many um, things to be accurate about. So, so one would be the number of abortions. The other one would mm -hmm. be what, it, what, what viability is, uh, mm -hmm. whether, what a soul is, or is there evidence for a soul? Um, uh, the other one is, um, you know, how, how historically uh, deterministic does women's desires to pr uh, put off having children seem to be. And, and there's something called the second demographic transition, which is in er just about every country that we know about where women have, in fact, I can't think of a single exception to this, uh, where women have access to higher education and uh, barriers for occupational attainment are fewer. Uh, they have fewer kids and they want more control over their reproduction. There, there's some kind of, and nobody knows, I mean, people don't know about this. You know, nobody even knows what a second demographic transition is. Most people have to Google what the fuck is that. So, so there are many things on which we can be accurate or inaccurate. Uh, my claim is, is that every axis of accuracy or inaccuracy is going to hew more toward accuracy from this point onward, so long as we don't blow ourselves up in nuclear war. Uh, and, and that, yes, that, that will create a convergence of desires and a convergence of um, goals based on what is realistic uh, um, and possible uh, given our increased accurate understanding. Now, uh, I'm not saying that it would be a monoculture. I do think that that people would differ because of different temperaments and different personalities. It's just that they won't differ as wildly. So like we would have the mm. debate be like, you know, what is the best way, what, you know, what is the best way to, to balance um, uh, you know, our desire for children and uh, their, their viability with women's desires, which seem to be global, depending on the development of the country for control over their reproduction and, and some sort of uh, opportunity to, to seek job security and occupational success and so on. It's going to be a balancing. It's going to be a trade-off question. And, yeah. and we're going to need more and more data to calibrate that trade-off. But what will happen critically is that there's going to be a narrowing of debate. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not going to get bigger than life begins at conception. No, it doesn't. It, it's going to get more and more precise, more and more exact. Uh, um, yeah. So, so there's, there's not going to be an increase in the broadness of the dispute. There's going to be an increase in the specificity of the dispute, and it's going to become more data and evidence-based. And I think along that trajectory, people will start to agree on more and more. 
They'll be less led by their intuitions and their religious books, and they'll be more led by data. And so long as the mm. data is discernible, then then people will find more to to agree on. They're still going to disagree, but they'll find more to agree on. That totally makes sense. I mean, even just having the same information in a conversation with another person can be, I I guess there's still that, do you think that, um, does this, does this question, is this question even coherent to you? What is the point of accuracy? Calibration. What is calibration? I thought you said those, wait, wait, is calibration the same? It's not the same. So calibration. Okay. So yeah, but so wouldn't accuracy be, so you're, the point of accuracy is calibration. So you want to be, you want to be calibrated to the truth. But what's the point of the truth? Uh, to me, there's an infinite regress there that can only be solved through positing something, and that's the absurdity. Cal- that's calibration the absurdity helps. Thing. So calibration helps net with. So I'm being very abstract, but calibration helps with navigation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these problems about meaning and all this, these are navigation problems in, in a sort of a problem space. How do, how do I navigate this issue of feeling emotional contentment and, and a sense of structure, et cetera? So, so uh, the, if, if our goal is to navigate the world, and it seems that every animal has this goal, it's almost like constitutive of what it means to be alive. You know, it, plants are alive to the extent that they can navigate the the soil with their root structure. I mean, there's something very basic about the the motivation to navigate oneself to the world and the capacity to do that. So, so if we can better navigate, um, if we can, if we're more flexible and we're better able to calibrate to the things around us, the idea is, is that the more accurate, the less distorted the information uh, from the world external to us, the better able we will be to understand that world and therefore to navigate it. Now, this is very abstract and it's probably not satisfying. But but that that's the broadest way that I'm understanding this. Yeah, I don't. Well, I wish I had. Cha- I think like what instantly comes to mind to me is like, well, which world do you want to na- like? Which what is the world that you're becoming calibrated to to navigate? Which world you would want to be able to be calibrated and navigated to is in the future, right? And and like so, and since the future isn't created, you're going to want the future to be a certain how you want it to be. So you're going to want to kind of, you want to calibrate yourself to make the future how you want it so that you can navigate it. So like I, so I see top it now. Down. So top down is so the subjective thing. It's, it's so top down. It's like, what you I don't, want. but I don't understand you what you're navigating. It has to be that way. Right. Because like, like, so say you have like the body, you have full control over your body. What do you want to do with it? Like to me, it's like, there's, it, the wrong still, way to- there's, it's missing the causal chain. It's confusing the causal chain. What you want is the same thing as the particular configuration of electricity and chemistry in your body, which is That's always true because what like a, a craving is for something that you don't have, right? Like like a wanting is I like I would want. I think this like why do people say no to the um? It's the the, the philosophical argument about the experience machine. Like if you could step into a machine and it wouldn't be real, but but reality, the, the most, the best reality that you can imagine would be simulated for you. People say, no, they wouldn't want to live in it. And yeah. it's because I think they want to create the future. Yeah. That, I feel like there's a circularity. That's the thing. I think there's a circularity in what you're saying in, in the, in the, in the sense that you're wanting, you're becoming calibrated to the world in order to navigate the world. But the problem is, is now you're navigating a world that you're not calibrated to because time moves on and you have new experiences and 
to me, there's a, still that question of, well, what's the point of truth? What's the point of, and since I can ask, what's the point of truth? That's kind of like, now I'm outside the system again. It's, an in, it's, it's always this inside outside system problem where if I can ask, well, what's the point of truth? Then I need to go, well, what's the outside my, what part, I want? The outside part is only in your head. The inside part is the real world, is the natural world. So I get that you can ask, what is the point of truth seeking in some sort of larger cosmic existential way? I can ask, what is the point of water having two hydrogen uh, molecules? What's the point of that? And, and uh, it, I mean, you know, I think this is my critique of philosophy is that we can get busy arguing about our language instead of arguing about the world. So asking what is the point of truth seeking in some existential way, you know, very well might not have an answer. It's just that you're a symbolic ape that can speak language. doesn't mean that it's a coherent question. I mean, the point of truth seeking is this mechanistic um, capacity to orient ourselves to the environment. That, that's, that's what it does. It's, it's not what it should be. It's what it is. It's what, it, it's what it's doing. So I, yeah, I mean, these are, I, I see these as religious questions. You know, what I is the bigger purpose of this or that? Yeah, I think so. But I think, I think there are existential questions for sure. Like, I think the world isn't what exists. I, I think the world is what exists and what could be. And because like, like when you think about possible, like when we talk about possibilities, there's what exists and what exists can give is multiple, what exists is multiply realizable what exists can create multiple, many different possible futures. Humans have a, the capacity to exercise a mechanism that is them um, to realize a specific possibility given the multiple realizability. And it's that confrontation with time to me that I can't, I, I'm having a, such a hard time. I wish I, could, I wish I could decode it because all I'm hearing is a lot of words for people have goals. People make goals. And I'm like, yeah, yeah no, it's it, like off into this dense wordy. I don't, people make it goals is that, but we, about the future. But we, totally. But they, but they also, but also they, they interact with the future. Like they're, if their goals are future contingent, mm -hmm. it's that contingency, you know, that's, that's Sartre's term, the contingency of that. I like it. I, I, that contingency, I think is, I'm having a hard time understanding how the world could operate without that. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. This has been, I, uh, you might've seen the last time we talked, I have been like so starved of intellectual conversation. I, I've actually been going insane a little bit, honestly. Like I, it was something I haven't really fully realized till lately of like, oh, I'm like weirdly writing all this stuff. I'm going in these weird directions. Cause like, I, I miss so much just being in grad school and being able to like, like, you know, <laughs> I was talking to Aliona about it and I was like, we would have these intellectual conversations in class or I would force them, you know, like I would just make it have to be like, and I would get all of this out of my system. Um, and I, I could go in your office and we could talk and not having that has been just brutal. And like, I've been trying to talk to some people about some stuff, like some of the things that we talk about and it's like, just, and it's so, it's kind of lonely. Uh, it's actually super lonely. Right? And so I, I appreciate uh, you I love this conversation and I'm, I'm excited to have the recording too on the podcast to kind of go back and, you know, replay it and re-listen to it. Yeah, this is fun for me too. I like it. I like talking about this stuff. And if I can't articulate things and make sense, then uh, I don't know what I believe. So this is useful and fun. So, uh, 
you know, man, there, there's a lot of intellectual loneliness in academia too. Uh, so I, I think it's just a matter of finding the right people, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're in academia or not. And uh, they're just rare. I mean, it's weird to, you know, you think about it. It's, it's weird to sit down on what or is it Sunday, Monday? I don't even know what the fuck it is. It's weird yeah, to sit down and talk about this shit for two hours or whatever. It's, it's strange. I mean, you know, we're not worried about food. We're not worried about shelter. We're not worried about keeping our kids safe. We're, we're not worried about anything particularly practical. We're just going to sit down and have this highfalutin, abstract, jargon-filled. Like, it's a, it's a strange pastime. It probably doesn't appeal to most people, and that's okay. Um, but, you know, it's like a foraging. You know, people forage for food. They also like to forage for ideas. And some people like to forage for ideas more than others. I think you got to find the right people, but uh, this has been fun.